back, everybody. This is going to be another fantastic, exciting, uh, totally unrehearsed intro outro that we do every week. We do have an idea of what we're trying to do, but I am Morgan Ryan, one of your hosts of the show, here literally with my partner in crime, the one, the only, the Tennessee hillbilly who went to West Virginia and now ran to Florida. There you go. And I'm crossed between a redneck and a hillbilly. And this is Murph, Steve Murphy here, everybody. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, Murph's a uh, product of reincarnation, if you uh <laughs> I saw that. That was funny. <laughs> Got to take a look at our Facebook page. Well, hey, guys, you all, welcome back. This is going to be, again, another, we got a fantastic guest, an interesting one, too, coming up. So, uh, hey, we just uh, the script says I'm supposed to do uh, housekeeping, which I just did. Some Apple review stuff. Here we go. Uh, Apple, Spotify, just go out and give us those five stars. We really appreciate it when you guys do that. Really helps us out a lot. And really, uh, we enjoy the comments, so please uh, keep those things coming. Also, head on over to our website. You're going to want to do it for this one because the guy that we got coming up doesn't have one, doesn't have two, doesn't have three books. He got a shit ton of books. Oh, yeah. What's that, seven? (laughs) I lost count after 94. (laughs) So uh, we'll have to – but but just head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Our merch is over there, um, our mailing list, and our book list. So you're going to want to check this out. Follow us on social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But let me tell you. I could say it really fast, real fast, three times. Where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be, Murph. You got to come over and check us out on Patreon. We've got, uh, just like we say every week, we've got a ton of content over there, probably as much as we have on the regular podcast. We get a little bit more into uh, our personal opinions on certain things. We have some fun. We've got Q&A. We've got Can't Make a Shit Up. We've got 911. What's your emergency? Uh, we got bonus content. Did you content. just say 991? Probably. <laughs> Folks, call nine one one, please. But that's why they took it off from Murph's phone. He could he could find the nine. He couldn't find the eleven. Well, it's the, it the one one nine is what I was looking for. But uh, I mean, there's, there's a we rate a movie every month, law enforcement related movie. So come over, and just check us out, see what you think. If you don't like it, well, just stick with us. It's going to get better. It gets better. And look, trust me, yeah, we just got some good stuff. We just released some stuff, plus one of our major things that we did, uh, 16, well, basically 15 episodes, 16 hours of The Real DEA Narcos on The Real DEA Narcos Cali Edition. We just dropped episode number five today as we're recording this for our episode coming out on Monday. Plus, we just released our Q&A, as Murph said. So we got some good stuff. So folks, go check us out. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. You can, uh, we've got three different levels there. So just gone over Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. You are going to enjoy it. I believe it. PayPal.com. Use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or PayPal.me slash Game of Crimes. Whatever it makes it easier for you to do a pause for the cause and uh, just toss something over the fence and help support the show. Now, as always, we should have, again, always dramatic music with this. This is a disclaimer. We have a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but what, Murph? What Murph? We, we never take ourselves serious. We want to have some fun on here with you. We talk about serious topics, but we're going to have some fun. Yes, we are. And uh, before we can have fun, we have to do – it's required by law now. We have to do our update. And guess what it's time for? It's time for Small, Small Town Police so I got a couple interesting tweets. These ones actually come to us. They're not quite small towns, but I think the tweets, the tweets they put out out into the Twitterverse are funny. The first one comes from Steve, and it's called Regina Police. Wow. What, uh, what country is that in? That's Canada. <laughs> All right. Those Canadians, Regina they, Police. They know how to have fun up there. Yes, they do. And this one had an awful lot of uh, comments and uh, likes and uh, retweets. It's just simple. They say, 
We always wonder how many of the incidents we investigate start with somebody yelling, YOLO, you know, you only live once. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> that's what that's what they put out, man. I always wonder how many of the incidents we investigate started with somebody yelling, YOLO. Here we go. Hold my beer. Hold my beer. That's what I was going to say. Hold my beer. Watch. Yeah, anytime a redneck says, hold my beer, you know something's about to happen. Oh, I tell you what, sounds like something might be on small town murders. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Friends and Jim and Jamie's yeah. James and Jimmy over there. Hey, well, this one comes to us from the Greater Manchester Police in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Now, anytime you put out something on Twitter, you got to be careful because... If you leave even an opening, people will just dive right into it and take it in a place you didn't want to go. Yeah, they do. So, 3.11 p.m., a 999 number. If that's that's if you're in the U.K., you dial 911. In the United States, it's 911. But what sequence do you call those numbers in? 999. I'm going to let you figure it out. <laughs> All right. Darwinism is going to solve a lot of your problems, pal. <laughs> A nine, a triple nine just in, a half-naked and rather large drunk man threatening to bite people in the village. Officers on their way. Now, they left that out there, and then a little bit later, because of a lot of the comments they got, they wrote back, they say, to clarify, we think it's the top half that's naked, so rather large <laughs> refers to torso rather than anything bottom half. <laughs> I, you know, you're exactly right, because, I mean, you can see this on anywhere on social media. You put something out there, somebody's going to take a shot at it. <laughs> Boy, they well, had if to. If he's naked on the lower part, what's he going to bite, I wonder? Well, it just says he's half naked and rather large, threatening to bite people in the village. So, oh. well, that's just, what that's, do we say, kids? Don't do math. Well, I mean, I mean, if that was in Regina, Canada, I mean. Well, that wasn't in Regina. Oh, that wasn't. was in okay. the U.K. <laughs> Nice try, Murph. Nice try. You're completing Reginas and uh, torsos. So I, I don't know what you're talking about. So, hey, this next one, though, speaking of meth, um, they had a kind of a sense of humor. So they show pictures of a huge seizure mm -hmm. uh, sitting on the desk. You know, the interdiction officer's got a huge seizure. Bunch of little bunch of bags look like kilo bags uh, numbered. And they show a black canine sitting there, you know, and mm -hmm. it's a, a police canine. You see the badge around its neck. Mm -hmm. And uh, so somebody being clever, say police busted a meth lab using a meth lab. <laughs> I know. I'm not, wait a minute. I'm trying to get a laugh out here. <laughs> oh, Lord. That's why we're cops and not comedians, right? That's right. <laughs> I tell you what, some it's of the a black lab, yes, but some of the audiences that however you're gonna speak to, I I throw a joke out there and you just hear crickets. And I'm like, guys, that's the that's as funny as it's gonna get here. Yeah, this is gonna be a long day if you That's, that's funny right there. Up. I don't care who you are, that's funny right there. Well, hey, let's finish up. I you know, we kinda had a visual thing, but here, let's finish up with this one though. This one is a real small town police blotter. Okay. Five thirty eight PM Steve. Police were called to a report of a suspicious incident in the 2900 block of West Acres Drive where a woman reported that she had found feces in her toilet she did not think <laughs> she put there. There was no damage to the house and no other reason to believe someone had been inside the house. I took a dump and I don't remember. I forgot to flush. That's gonna be a new, that's gonna be one of those new commercials. I've taken a dump and I can't get up, you know. It doesn't say the age of the complainant, does it? No, but if you've taken... Here's a pro tip, folks. 
Don't use meth. If you've taken a dump and you can't remember you've taken a dump, you probably need to cut back. It might be time to uh, go to assisted living. It might be, yes. Hey, so. and you know what? And we're not making fun of it. I mean, it's just funny. You know, it's, uh, I'm probably on that way to, <laughs> I can't even remember 199. <laughs> we would not even be remotely making fun of her if somebody didn't pick up the phone and call the police and say, I found a turd in my toilet. <laughs> Well, that's, that's where they're supposed to be. That's yes. one way to put it. Yep. Yep. Okay. Oh, my God. Uh, All right. Well, mm. Kyrie Domine Dane Requiem. Thank goodness. Uh, speaking of that, we just watched uh, my my uh, middle child came over, my son. We watched uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and that's where it is. P-A-S-U Domine Dane Requiem. Whack. So if you watch that, you guys get it. And it's just a flesh wound. So, hey, but uh, let's <laughs> let's set this one up, though, too. Hey, before we get into that, though, just guys, remember, too, we got another little thing, too. Go over to our Game of Crimes fans page run by our uh, favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Just even get close. Answer a couple questions. Just wing it. Just pretend that you know what you're talking about. Just throw some answers in there. Go join us. Just simple. Go to Facebook. Type in Game of Crimes fans. Take you to the page. That's where we have. That's kind of the after party party that's where the good stuff goes on the, i tell you what some of the folks on there come up with the funniest stuff it, it's hilarious what you read on there and then they kind of expound on it and it really gets funny it really gets funny so make sure that it's really funny so make sure that you're watching it uh, watching it yeah make sure that you go there and have fun with it so there hey, you go. so let's talk of this one um this is another canadian so this is uh, we're 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 rounding out our complement of Canadians yep. uh, that we have on here, and uh, Mike Arntfield uh, is kind of a unique character. So this because of what we talked about, it only this is only going to be a one episode show, so we won't have a part two. There's only be one part to this, but we talk about some real interesting stuff when we talk about his work that he's done in serial crimes, serial killers helping develop an algorithm that has identified actually a serial killer. Uh, I believe in Indiana. Uh, they're also working on another one where they think they've linked 56, I think, or more uh, homicides in Chicago to the same person. So this is really, and he's written a book. So he's got a PhD now. He was in police work, worked on getting his PhD. So Steve, I mean, this is one of those things. This is more cerebral. So this was tough for you. <laughs> I was just getting ready to say, you won't hear me talk a lot on this one. <laughs> but this was, uh, um, we were introduced to Mike by Steve Matelski, who's uh, been a former guest here on our show and has been very gracious in helping us to find some other Canadian police officers that we could bring on because we'd like to have our Canadian brothers and sisters on there. So thank you, Steve. Um, I think that this became so technical. Uh, I've never been assigned to work murders. I've worked on murder cases and suicide cases, but uh, I was never a lead officer or a lead detective on any of that stuff. Uh, and it takes, you know, with with the way that technology is changing now and, and additional investigative tools that might be in the investigator's toolbox, I was uh, impressed with everything I heard. And, and you listeners, you won't hear me say this often. I was even impressed with Morgan. So, have you been drinking again, Murph? You fall <laughs> off the wagon. <laughs> no, this is very interesting because it really it talks about some complex issues that you won't. I don't. I don't think you're hearing about it anywhere else. Yeah, we kind of do a deep dive on some stuff, and this is stuff that I'm really uh, fascinated about. Actually, it's helped me too. Uh, as we record this, the following day, I'm driving down to the Virginia Association of Chiefs of Police conference. I'm meeting with uh, th three detectives. Uh, on a cold case that I have helped them make a major breakthrough on. And so we're meeting to do a case review while we're down there. And uh, hopefully we're going to get, uh, we've got some work to do on it, but uh, hopefully we're going to get some resolution and we will indict someone. And when we do, I will bring you reports of that. But that being said, absolutely, there's only one way, Steve, 
Murph, whatever you call it. All I know is that if you're in danger, just keep dialing di- digits until somebody says 911, what's your emergency? 199, here we go. <laughs> keep keep dialing. <laughs> All right. Hey, but there's only one way we can find out what Mike Arnfield has to say, and that's me asking you, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most complex, dangerous, and un- um, not under, I can't even Spit say it, it anymore. <laughs> the most, the most dangerous game of all game of crimes. Like that's my Derek Maltz invitation. Most dangerous game of all game of crimes. And just so you know, we're watching college football. It's Saturday. So it's, I think he's been into, I think he's been into that Belgian beer, if you know what I mean. But listen, everybody, this one is, is one that you haven't heard anything like it before on here. So get in, sit down, shut up and hold on. Bring on Mr. Mike Arntfeld. All right, amigos, amigas, players, playerettes, dude, dudettes, everybody in between. As we say, welcome back. This is another fantastic episode, and we we traveled back to the north, eh? Back <laughs> to the north to find somebody. To we we had we've had such good luck with all of our Canadian guests. We know that this one will not disappoint if the pre-call is any indication. So, Mike Arnfield, and is that did I pronounce that right? Is it Arnfield or Arnfeld? Field. Arnfield. All right, you got it. Just call him Mike. Just call him Mike. We're going to call you Mike. Mike A. Mikey A. So Mike A, welcome to Game of Crime, sir. Thank Ooh, you. Welcome Good to Mike. be here. Good. And a shout out to Steve Matelski for making the introduction for us here. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And speaking of Steve Matelski, we used him. We interviewed a guy named Jack Garcia. That's going to be a podcast coming out. Jack worked undercover in the FBI to work on the Gambino crime family. He was he. They pulled the plug right before he was going to go through the ceremony and become a made man. That's wow. how close. And then we were telling him about the one Stephen Matelski showed us. He said, this is what it's really like. Two guys in a velour running suit telling the guy, yeah, wave your right hand. Okay, promise to do that. Okay, that's really good. Now let's go to the buffet. That was up there in Canada, uh, up in Toronto, I think, in some Motel 6. <laughs> oh, that's an expedited ceremony. <laughs> yeah, totally ruined the mystique of it. But uh, anyway, but hey, no, Mike, this will be fun because you and I were talking a little bit beforehand. We've got somebody in common, uh, 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 Tom Hargrove and... Um, the, the project that you have been working with. And I've been using some of your data too, to do, to do some work. So this is going to be fascinating, but as we do with everybody in this thing, we call this thing of ours, uh, Cosa Nostra La Law Enforcement. You like how I worked that in. Hey, tell us, but tell us, set, let's set the groundwork. How did you get started in this field? You know, what, what led you to it? Cause you've written books. I mean, you've been involved, you've got your own podcast, um, called Suspect Zero. You've written lots of articles, research. How did you get started in this? Were you just bored one day and decided, Hey, I think I'll do this or what? You know, Morgan, it's been a, a long winding road. Um, I, was teenager. Let's go way back, okay? Uh, and basically, three things coalesced that made me realize that I wanted to pursue law enforcement. So number one, uh, and this is detailed in my book, uh, Murder City, about uh, the city where I grew up and its prevalence of serial killers, which people don't typically associate with, you know, suburban Canada, but uh, my research suggests that there was more in London, Ontario, Canada per capita than anywhere else in the world for about 30 years. And one of those killers struck in the neighborhood where I grew up and was never caught. And I walked the same path to school as one of uh, the boys, that young boys that was targeted by this sicko. And the question always was, you know, is, is he from the neighborhood? Is he still lurking around? So, I mean, those are 
that's the specter in which sort of I grew up. So that piqued my interest in crimes of the past and cold cases just as, as a boy. Then second, uh, my father was the district attorney for 20 years. So there's always files around the house. There's always cops coming to the house for beers after cases. Um, so a window into sort of the fraternity of, of law enforcement through him. And then the third was um, my original career plan was to be uh, a lead guitarist in a heavy metal band and be a rock star. Uh, and my next door neighbor was a detective. And uh, I had the amp cranked one day and was just like shredding solos. And he knocks on the door. And I thought he was coming to complain about the noise. And he, and he says, can you teach me to play like that? So I started giving this guy guitar lessons and he was kind of an aspirational dude. Like he just, you know, he was in his fifties. He decides, I, know, I want to learn to play rock guitar. Um, and he drove a cool car. He just seemed like a cool guy. And I thought, you know what? Like this lifestyle, you know, he'd be home at like Tuesday at noon in the summer at the pool. And I thought, you know, a job that offers that kind of diversity and excitement and also, uh, seemed to be a work-life balance and a, and a lifestyle. I knew I wasn't cut out for nine to five, Monday to Friday stuff. So uh, all of these things sort of came to be uh, in my late teens. And I realized, you know, um, this is what I wanted it. And I was fortunately successful straight out of university at uh, 21. You were to... successful in what, joining a heavy metal band and going on <laughs> on the road or something else? Well, <laughs> easy stop. strangely enough, uh, shortly after getting on the job, as we say, um, so I started in uniform, the same as everybody, uh, for the most part, at least if you're in a city department. And uh, there was a bunch of other guys who played instruments, and we started a band. I ended up leaving. I just the the, the set list that they wanted didn't really square with what I uh, what what I like playing. Why? What they were playing? Andy Williams and what Tennessee Ernie Ford or <laughs> oh, no, no I, Metallica? I take it. Yeah, no, none of that stuff. So it was just like um, you know, I, I think. Uh, some Joan Jett's tunes would be as, as, as heavy as they got. So I thought, you know what, peace out. But, um, Oh, that's weak, man. That's <laughs> weak. I played in a band up until about five years ago, six years ago, we called, we were actually kind of the same thing. Got a collection of people in the criminal justice society and stuff. We called ourselves the rolling justice review. What was your band name? My original band name was urban decay, which was, uh, my main metal band growing up. Uh, this band, uh, the police band, went through a number of names. Again, I was very briefly with them, but uh, when I was with them, uh, it was um, Last Hour, which was a terrible name. But what that means, and some cops listening might know what that means, back in the day, if you basically skipped lunch or you worked through lunch because you were on a, a you know guarding a, a scene or, or or something like that, and you couldn't really take a, a lunch you got what's called last hour, which basically your last hour off in lieu and you got to leave early. So uh, an obscure esoteric name that they later changed. But um, I guess the bottom line here is that I was right. Uh, and that, um, you know, people drawn to law enforcement, I've, I, I quickly realized come from a variety of backgrounds, but frequently have common interests that I don't think the public knows uh, that cops do. I mean, no one would equate I think most police officers with, you know, being uh, uh, music connoisseurs. Well, and I've got a question for you about when your dad was the DA and cops were coming over, uh, sitting around. I can't believe Canadian cops are drinking beer. 
Come on, that you have a standard. No, I can't believe they're drinking beer after this case. Normally, it's during the case, before the case, while the case is going on. Yeah, perhaps, hey, uh, but not at the trial. Yeah. Did your cop buddies know that you were into heavy metal? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And a lot of these guys, again, uh, come from um, again diverse backgrounds, but I think certain things in common, which I'd like from what I've seen, are mostly supportive parents, good families who provide the resources to either pursue music, pursue sports, pursue um, civic activities. And those are obviously the, the bedrock of the collective bedrock of, I think, what you would call sort of the police personality. You know, we, we all kind of have our, uh, our, I don't know if you call it a secret or not, but um, most people that know me think I'm kind of quiet and so forth. Uh, one of my favorite bands is Pitbull. I love that guy. <laughs> I can't believe Nobody that first going. I like Pitbull. Then he started jamming to Pitbull and rapping like Pitbull. I said, no, no, that just stopped there. Stop. That's going to be a whole new podcast. Yeah, no, I'll that's... probably do that solo. <laughs> yeah, let's not. Hey, let's rewind a little bit, though, because I don't want to gloss over stuff. Your dad was the district attorney. You were growing up in London, Ontario, which I just pulled up the map here. So it is south and west of Toronto. Um uh, and I had some friends on uh, Toronto Police Services, uh, OPP up north, all, all the way up in um uh, where Shania Twain is from. So, um, he, he, Goodness, he was, yeah. he was in the South Porcupine detachment for OPP, but oh boy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> way up there. Um, and I've been there before too. Exciting. But Hey, going back to that, when your dad was, uh, the district attorney, did he prosecute any of the serial cases that you were referring to? Well, for your listeners, uh, I mean, I use the term district attorney because that's what Americans know. Here we call it the crown attorney. Um, right, the crown. And it's appointed, not elected, which has uh, some issues uh, depending on your jurisdiction. Uh, but uh, no, he didn't because a lot of these serial killers weren't caught. I mean, he prosecuted a number of uh, he, he focused on prosecuting murder cases and had some really interesting ones. Exorcisms gone wrong where the, the boy died. Um, a guy who Jeez. murdered his, his, his uh, mother because uh, his Dungeons and Dragons character uh, did the same thing and he had to emulate that. Some really, some really interesting cases, but none of the, the serial ones that actually predated his, his tenure. Now, did you sneak in as a Ute and uh, look over his cases to see what was going on? Were you reading them instead of, you know, Stephen King or other stuff uh, during the day? Well, I didn't need to read them because we would actively discuss them. I mean, uh, and, and my friends in particular were just fast, whose parents had comparatively, I think, boring jobs. I mean, good jobs, but I mean, uh, this was all pre-true crime, pre-reality television. And I mean, to come over to my place and hear the stories, I mean, perhaps... Cops, kids, probably have better stories. Uh, but by the time these cases got to court, I mean, he got to pick and choose, really, the the files that uh, he was most interested in and which commanded that a, a, a thorough, uh, relentless job be done. So, I mean, he he had sort of the, the cream of the crop in terms of, I think, story-worthy cases. Oh, you, wow. know, as a, you know, as a teenager, I mean, that would be a hoot to go in and listen to <laughs> to somebody's dad like that. That'd yeah, sit around a campfire and say, hey, forget forget that story. I got a case file. Let's read my yeah. case file here. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hey, well, let's talk about your glide path then, because that's what got you interested in it. But uh, after high school, what did you do and what, what was your glide path into law enforcement? How did that look? So after high school, I went to universities for a three-year um anthropology, archaeology degree, which 
uh, I figured could get me in and out and would give me the degree sort of the police services in Canada at the time were, were really uh, expecting, quite frankly, to have. I mean, it was, it was by the time I was interested, a pretty sought after position. So that was one of the requirements. I knew I'd go back one day, but uh, I really wanted to get out uh, in my early 20s as fast as I could. So, um, you know, my university experience initially was what you would call perfunctory, I guess. What What did you major in? Anthropology, archaeology, which I mentioned actually in my TED Talk, which is sort of... Uh, I guess ironic because I, I frequently, as I've done in my last book as well, compare cold case work to archaeological work, and then you sort of have to be one part detective, one part Indiana Jones, as you unearth, uh, you know, things from the past and interpret them through the lens of the present. Yeah, Murph, you're on mute too. It's my my turn to dog you. You're on mute, Murph. Oh, sorry. Uh, I, what I'm saying is that's pretty cool, Mike. And uh, did you anticipate? utilizing that in your law enforcement career? Were you thinking ahead that far? Yes and no. I mean, I, I figured it would be, I mean, a, a lot of most three-year degrees, quite frankly, I mean, are to form your interest in something and to teach you how to learn, to teach you how to research. Um, and it's funny, during my panel interview, uh, to get on the job, which of course is all senior officers, I think it was the deputy chief. Uh, and he says, you know, quite sarcastically, are you here because uh, they're not hiring archaeologists currently, which was sort of, a, <laughs> I, I think, a shot at my chosen major. Well, you should have told um, him, are you afraid I'm going to dig up and, your family when I go out there? That's how old you are, dude? Yeah, he's pretty old. Um, <laughs> but, uh, just a, a very dry sense of humor, as, again, most guys on the job by that age have. Um, but then I, I knew, obviously, it was a general enough degree that I could spin it out into some graduate course of study that um, was more directly applicable once I'd, I'd banked some years on the job and then had the street cred. Mm-hmm. Hey, and and Mike, we, we kind of missed an important point. Which department did you apply for? Yeah, so I applied to three just to hedge my bets. Uh, so one was in London, Ontario. Uh, one was Ottawa, Ontario, which is the Canadian capital. One was uh, Peel region, which is um, just a, a massive sort of sprawling, largely suburban commercial area uh, just west of Toronto um, that uh, had a reputation sort of as a rough-and-tumble department that I already knew some people who had gotten on there. And and London was the first to uh, offer me a job. So, I mean, it was close to home, so that's the one I took. How big of a department? uh, So kind of give us the layout now or, you know, some of the demographics and some of the information about London, Ontario. You know, how big of a town is it? How big was your department? Kind of how big of an area did you guys cover? Yeah, great question. So at the time, uh, it was around 320,000 people. It's now about, I mean, metro, about half a million. Uh, The department always prided itself on having um, the lowest cop to pop. Uh, ratio in the country, uh, which meant threadbare uh, staffing, I mean, on on many days. And it only had around, I think, 300 sworn officers for a a city of that size. Uh, Now there's about seven or 800 plus civilians. uh, And they civilianize a lot of the duties as well. So more cops on the street, I think, at any given time. Um, But yeah, the the city then was uh, chiefly white collar, middle class, as I mentioned 
very few people knew that for 30 years up until about the mid 80s had more serial killers per capita than anywhere at least north america if not globally um and for the most part of a, a pretty conservative banking and insurance city uh, that was really reluctant to change. I mean, we were one of the last departments, I think, in Canada, certainly in the province of Ontario, to to move from uh, the the old powder blue shirts with the clip-on ties to a more tactical style black uniform with you know a a, a dicky around the neck instead of a of a useless tie and to move to outer vests. So I mean, because it was, I mean, that was the look from the '60s that they wanted to preserve in perpetuity, and that, that was really the the thinking of management at the time, which is in part why. Um, well, that was the NYPD. The NYPD, remember, used to have those powder blue shirts because the theory was powder blue would make you more approachable to the public, makes you kinder, gentler. Right. But, but what people forgot is its command presence. What's what's the first thing they notice about you? And if you look like you're a cupcake and a cream puff and a pushover, you're going to get, unfortunately, that's what's going to happen. You're going to get treated like that. So you've seen a lot of departments get away from that. And then, like you say, they've gone back to more NYPD's uniform now is all blue. You see a lot of people change to uh, different things. So uh, I agree. Now, before we get past this too far, you've mentioned like three times now, London, Ontario was the capital of serial killers. You're you're not doing a whole lot for tourism for London, Ontario. So um, let's talk a little bit about, I, I know this is kind of jumping forward a little bit, but through your research and everything, was there anything about the area that contributed, like from the United States, it seemed to be Seattle was kind of like the epicenter of many serial killers, that between that and L.A. And what was it about London, you think, that uh, Ontario, that created this uh, confluence of people with similar aims? Well, I float three theories in my in my book, Murder City, but the, I think the most prominent, you've already mentioned it when you talked about where London is situated. It is equidistant between Detroit, Michigan and Toronto as Canada's largest city and was really the first, I would say, middle-sized city. It was previously sort of walled off to have highway access where people from either direction, as far you know, uh, west as Detroit, as far east as Toronto could get to London and access its um, population of students and many young people very easily. And we already know the effect of the interstate on trends in serial homicide in the U.S. What we call the King's Highway System in Ontario predates uh, the U.S. interstate network by about five years. So we were experiencing, um, I mean, the, the FBI has a task force focusing on uh, interstate serial killers. We were experiencing that reality uh, before they were even dropping blacktop to, to create the interstate system in the U.S. Yeah, it was called the Highway Serial Killer Initiative, I believe. Um, but, right. you know, that kind of reminds me, too. Are you familiar with Kim Rosmo? Yes, I met him briefly at Quantico, actually, a few years ago, where I was speaking with another member of the American Accountability Project. And obviously, um, comparisons are made because he was on the job for many years, got his PhD supervised by another uh, a very prominent, rigorous criminologist here in Canada named Eric Beauregard, who I've also met a couple of times. Um, and yeah, he's he's made quite a name for himself. Well, and what I thought was interesting is some of the – I've talked with Kim a couple of times. We looked at trying to do some stuff with him down here in Virginia. But that's – but when you started applying geographic profiling to like uh, – we had uh, episode – I think it was 13, uh, was it, Steve? I think. But we had Dave Reichert. He, he was the lead investigator for the Green River killer case. 
and uh, 49 homicides attributed to Gary Ridgway. Then they attributed, I think, another four more. But when they when they used the geographic profiling and they started looking at where he was, where it most likely looked like he was uh, based around, there were two hot spots. One was his home, and one was the Kenworth dealer where he worked out of. And I just found that fascinating because you know it started putting in perspective how they operate. I kind of lay out that groundwork to say this: is, Did you guys use? Uh, was any of the geographic profiling used in the uh, serial killer cases up there in London? Did you come up with a, any kind of heat map that showed you most likely where they were operating out of, or did London seem to be the place where the bodies showed up, or did that seem to be where they were operating from? They were operating from there. Uh, the bodies frequently turned up in another jurisdiction, an OPP jurisdiction, which was part of the issue and part of how I ended up writing the book because. Uh, a single OPP detective uh, inherited most of them when the bodies were dumped in their in his jurisdiction. So he left a lot of his files to his son, who then turned them over to me. And yes, we applied geographic profiling actually in uh, an episode of an obscure uh, true crime series that I hosted on Oprah Winfrey's network called To Catch a Killer. And the heat map aligned with uh, the, the small town where we know... Um, the killer lived and um he was never caught uh we know i mean certainly to a balance of probability so a civil court standard that it was no doubt him uh and police have yet to go and knock on his door journalists have knocked on his door and gotten statements from him ridiculous statements that i think are actually self-incriminating uh but police just won't go near don't get me started it's just uh which we'll, we'll, I mean, that's yeah. part of yeah. why I wrote the book. Yeah, we'll save that for later. But last question on that, is the guy still alive? He is. He is. And uh, still, as far as I'm concerned, dangerous. As um, the research has shown, uh, sadists, uh, which he is, do not age out of uh, their paraphilias and their predilections. They just find other ways as they get older and not as virile and strong to, to indulge them. But I mean, if, if the suffering and humiliation and pain of others excites you, that's not something that goes away as you get old and rickety. Yeah, that's kind of a Dennis Rader uh, BTK right. thing, too. That's what he was— uh, Precisely. Yeah, yeah. And actually, coming from Kansas, we're very familiar with the BTK case. Um, well, let's let's rewind a little bit, because I wanted to kind of set the stage for that to talk about how you got into it. So, I mean, you're working the mean streets of London, Ontario, as a uniform cop. Um, how, how does that go? Uh, you know, once you get out of the Academy and you get out of your field training program, what's it like being out on the streets? Is it what you thought it would be based upon the work that your dad did? Was it not as exciting? So what was it like, like say your first couple of years on the street? Yeah, tremendously exciting. Uh, I loved every minute of it. It's, um, I mean, this was a day now I'm told by my, my friends still there that they're holding, you know, two to 300 calls urgent calls uh, in a queue at any given time. But back then, I mean, you had freedom to roam. You could, you know, set up uh, speed traps, which, I mean, I was, I always thought traffic stops are uh, underrated in terms of, I mean, Mickey Mouse stops for a headlight. You'd be amazed. And you guys know this, what you, you can end up pulling out of that stop uh, in terms of, you know, guns, drugs, uh, wanted parties, uh, prevent crimes that are in progress. I got cash. I got over 200000 in cash out of the trunk of a car for no taillights. That's the only reason I stopped them. So there you, you go, you, Murph. Nah, 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 nah. Taillight chaser. 
You broke the tail lights out yourself. You can't do that. Uh, you know, hey, that's the details. Details. Um, it was still reasonable suspicion, which is a, okay. which is a. Uh, we got to be precise here. You don't need probable cause to stop a car. You only need reasonable suspicion. You have to have probable cause to arrest. Their taillights weren't working, Murph. And uh, you know what? They had the money to fix it, and they chose not to. Not my problem. Back to and in our drinking game, I digress. Uh, that's drinking game number one. Back to our regularly scheduled podcast. But so yeah, you say. That Murph and I both had that same look when you said now they're holding like 300 urgent calls Hello. just queued up. I mean, it, what what happened? I mean, people just get more violent in the area, more calls coming in, or is that just a function of um, just the bigger population? And the uh, do you have the appropriate number of officers in London uh, right now to deal with it? Well, there's never an appropriate number, regardless of, I think, the city that we're, we're talking about. I mean, so... Uh, from what I've seen, it's a it's a confluence of factors. One is uh, the population's exploded. It's one of the fastest growing cities in Canada. Two, uh, like a lot of cities, it has uh, just been ravaged by addiction and mental health and homelessness, uh, which in turn leads the police to being, of course, um, the janitors of, of of life. And every single social issue trickles down through other institutions to becoming a police problem, which obviously leads to a surge in people calling police for everything. Amen. Uh, and three, um, I think it's a combination of violence uh, and society just getting more ruthless, but at the same time, more entitled. I mean, by the time I left, the things that they would actually queue up to dispatch were just outrageous. And uh, now, as I understand, they've, they've removed, uh, there used to be a sergeant in the comm center who would vet and screen what calls uh, were dispatched and how many officers you would need because they had the experience to make those calls. As a cost-saving cost measure, they've removed an actual police officer from comms, so the civilians, many of whom are you know, doing their best and, and absolutely flooded with calls, um, are, are essentially dispatching everything. Unbelievable. You can't keep up with that. That's that's just outrageous. So to save money, they cut a position, but they end up spending far more money in that in overtime to handle all the calls that were either overstaffed or... Uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, game number three. So, but two. two. No, that was... Was it two? Uh, three if you're drinking. Maybe I'm drinking too much and it's three already. So, but, um, but speaking of that, Mike, so... You worked the street, but tell us about your transition from the street. What did you do? How long did you work the street before you had your next assignment? And what was that next assignment? Yeah, so I worked the street for, I think, three years. Uh, and then at the time, they had uh, one-year secondments to traffic, which, again, uh, a lot of people will scoff at. But that, I tell you, absolutely uh, – that was a springboard, I think, for the rest of my career. The, the freedom that it afforded to just, uh, you know, go out and tour around, stop any car. Um, and, I mean, it was that really. And then, obviously, the investigations that go with it. We, I would handle all the hit and run, major hit and run investigations. We would do collision reconstructions in the case of fatal accidents or serious injury accidents. Um, so that really sort of I, allowed me to you know, by my just mid-20s, dip my toe in sort of the world of specialized complex investigations. It's not just giving speeding tickets. So um, from there, I then went to a new experimental specialty unit, uh, which was essentially, um, and we see this more and more now with other departments, but in uniform, but in an unmarked car, uh, and picking and choosing the calls that, that, that you want to take. Um and then obviously that led to all kinds of interesting discoveries and stumbling across all kinds of things in progress. 
Uh, and from there, I went to the detective squad and moved through a, a variety of units. So uh, burglary, uh, robbery, uh, auto and arson, which was a, a single combined unit, criminal intelligence uh, and uh, homicide. And then um, went back to robbery, ended in robbery, and then went to basically a street crime slash vice unit, although they wouldn't let us call it that. Uh, so we would do um, prostitution stings, drug stings. Uh, and deal with uh, just a, a wide array of typically um, street crime as well as sort of, uh, again, morality crime. Uh, and then from there, I was basically done my PhD and, and window shopping professorships uh, and ended my career then basically just uh, in admin. You know, being uniform in an unmarked car, that's that's almost like being a, a tactical squad position where you get to pick and choose. That's one of the best jobs on the street. Oh, yeah. Cry havoc and let loose the dogs of war. And, the, and these are not cars. I mean, you can see a lot of subdued or unmarked cars. And you're like, yeah, that's a, that's a cop car. These are like, uh, one was a, an Oldsmobile Alero, if you remember that car. One was a Chevy Malibu, like an older model. Like not, they, they would look like uh, that's some retiree on his way to, to a bowling league. And, you know, I was going to say that's what grandpa drives to, to the bowling alley at you know, one o'clock. Yeah. And then three of us would, would hop out in uniform and, 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 you know, take them down. So, but how long, how, so I don't want to gloss over a lot of stuff. So let's kind of book in this. So how long was your career on uh, London, Ontario? Just shy of uh, 16 years. The last uh, two corresponding or, or being, um, concurrent with my then being a, a professor initially on contract and then tenured. So let's rewind a little bit because you're, you uh, obviously can't keep a job in the police department. You keep moving from <laughs> job to job. No, but that's great. I mean, you get all this stuff, but, but what we're talking about, what we're going to talk about is a case in Chicago involving a serial killer um, that you helped work on that became uh, a series on discovery. But we have to have some background first because how do you how does all of this stuff factor in to number one, let's talk about what your PhD was in, but number two, when did you get start getting this research bug or this investigative bug to say start looking at serial crimes? Well, believe it or not, my interest in serial so I mentioned already the cold case uh, that I was aware of as a, as a kid. It was sort of a local boogeyman story that all of the kids knew of. Um, but then once I got on the job in the late nineties, there was a, a cold case task force called project angel that was ongoing that my dad, who was still the, uh, the DA or the crown at the time, uh, was partially involved. in. so I was aware of all these older cases and then ultimately came to know one of the lead detectives on that pretty well. And, um, so that interest was sort of always, uh, evolving, but my interest in serial crime came about, um, sort of while doing my PhD dissertation, but then more so once I started teaching a course on serial killers uh, at Western, or the university I'm at now, Western University, which dovetailed from a course I taught on, um, on policing. And one of, the, one of the components or one of the, the segments was uh, uh, investigating s serial crime. So I thought, you know, this seemed to land really well. There was a, a lot of research and scholarship that I could draw on, I thought. So I, I proposed a, a whole course on that itself. And obviously in preparing for that is when I, um, my, you know, I, I'm learning as, as I'm also developing the, the materials and then ultimately um, become, you know, someone at the forefront of scholarship on the topic. So um, your PhD, what, what was you, uh, I love, I love talking to folks that have, um, 
they almost have a PhD because they, they say ABD, all but dissertation. So, you know, they get pretty close. But what was your dissertation on? And tell us about the process of getting that PhD, because it's fascinating because it's almost like going through your interview board again. You know, it's like you have to go up there and defend it. You know, you have to there's a lot of things you have to do to prepare for it. So what was your Ph.D.? What did you do your thesis on, I should say? And what was generally your degree in? So my Ph.D. Uh, dissertation was actually on police murders uh, and explored it. I mean, you, you really have have to do when you're doing a PhD dissertation more so obviously than, than a master's dissertation, which is a massive milestone in its own right. Um, but you're, you're talking about a, a, a very deep dive. You're doing something that nobody else has, has done before. So I was looking at the systemic uh, implications of uh, police homicides within uh, single departments. So this sort of, again, goes back to where I started in anthropology, archaeology, where one of the, the things that anthropologists and archaeologists uh, do are what, what are called ethnographies, where they look at, uh, again, the, the, the traditions and language and, and customs of specific uh, cultures and, and groups and societies. Uh, and really, that's what I was doing with police forces, uh, the difference being that I was looking at the aftermath, both the immediate aftermath and then the institutional legacy and storytelling legacy of uh, police murders, uh, mostly throughout the U.S., but obviously in, in some Canadian departments uh, that had a disproportionate number, namely the RCMP, that um, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that unfortunately um, have been involved in a number of police massacres, we could call them, and, and seem to be unwilling to uh, adapt and, and, and change their, their officer safety strategies. Well, I, I remember the one where four of them were killed. I think it was maybe five or eight years ago, um, four, four RCMP officers were killed. And yeah. And it's just, cause that's what I was I wanted to clarify too. When we say police murders, we're talking about the homicide of law enforcement officers in the line of duty, right? Correct. So, um, yeah, and that's interesting because Canada has been relatively safe. I mean, compared to when we look at it, compared to the United States, the number of officers that are lost. And, uh, you know, I obviously I follow and you you watch when an officer loses their life. But it's interesting the way that you approached it. What did you see the difference between the United States and Canada? Maybe one of the biggest differ- differences in, in related to those police homicides. Was there anything that struck you as being um why haven't we discovered this before or something along those lines? Well, I mean, it's a thousand pages worth of those observations, but I mean, okay, so we got some time, you know, bandwidth is free. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I would say, I mean, there is still the memorialization of fallen officers in, in Canada, obviously, but I, what I would say is, and again, to go back to the RCMP, I mean, um, there's a, there's an example, the degree to which, uh, the fallen officers on American departments become part of the institutional fabric of that department. And, and the fact that there seems to be the, the memorialization doesn't seem to ebb or flag as the years go by. In fact, it almost seems to become uh, something that galvanizes the department even more. I mean, when you, you just have to look at the online memorials that uh, as, as time goes by, this, this becomes something people never forget. So despite the fact that there are more, disproportionately more fallen or murdered law enforcement officers in the United States, uh, including deaths by 
uh, criminal negligence, not necessarily um, you know cop killings in the, in, the, in the sense I think a lot of people think, but many officers, as you know, are killed by uh, you know cars driving by them on the highway or in motorcycle accidents or what have you. Uh, it just accidents are the number one killer for a long time of law enforcement, uh, followed by felonious assault, and then the one that they don't talk about enough. I think they're getting to, but suicide kills more cops each year than line right. of duty deaths. And that is, I started looking at that, uh, but this is how fast things change is, uh, so I defended in 2011, uh, and then, I mean, you just couldn't get people to talk about that, and uh, or the idea that, that, you know, cops might also be afflicted with PTSD and need support groups, or that PTSD, uh, you know, was, was, was real, or what they're now calling uh, sanctuary trauma, which is a, a term coined by a, a Canadian scholar, which is the re-traumatization by your own agency and dismissing your um, what you've been through and, and what have you. I mean, I remember uh, on the London police, this would be the early 2000s, uh, a memo going out. It might not have been a memo. Maybe it was just on uh, a roll call. Um, basically, the officer in charge saying, uh, officers found taking a personal day or a mental health day uh, would be disciplined for feigning illness. Yeah, hindsight's a, a miraculous thing, isn't it? Yeah. What a shame. And now they're saying, you know, if you don't feel, don't come to work if you're having uh, these thoughts or take all the time you need. It's complete 180 from uh, the fact you, you would not only be ridiculed, but disciplined, uh, taken hours taken, days taken uh, for um, saying, you know what, I don't want to come to work. I don't feel like I should be doing this today. Um, and it's no surprise, I think, in London now, the, it's one quarter of officers are non-deployable due to similar issues. Wow. One quarter? Yeah. Wow. Now- On leave or accommodated. How So um, how much of that, uh, I just want to poke the bear a little bit, but uh, look, there, Murph and I, everybody's been through incidents and there's things that, you know, that really affect you, everything from whether you're involved in shootings or you have- a baby die in your arms while you're giving CPR. You know, there's many things that affect you. So sometimes it's relative, but out of that quarter, I mean, are, is there a danger is that we're allowing too much coddling or too much uh, flexibility in, in terms of how people define this? Is that just because of the, it's generational and it's cultural? I mean, the, the example I give is I just think of the military and I'm going, you can't yell at recruits anymore. You can't hurt their feelings. And I'm going, when I went through basic training in 1979, all of my drill sergeants were combat vets out of Vietnam. They had their combat infantry badge. We got yelled at all the time because it was a matter of life and death. They saw people die because people didn't have the requisite level of training they needed to survive in combat. So, I mean, what do you think? Is it just is this just a phase we're going through? Is it a reflection of our culture or something else? Yeah, I wish I had all, all the answers, but I mean, I think it's a combination of of all of that. There's not, there's, I mean, I know some people who are off who, uh, and I've had friends in law enforcement take their own life. And, uh, I mean, I would deem them to be, um, you know, resolute, uh, resilient people. And I think it's just years of scar tissue and again, sanctuary trauma, uh, that it just, it just became too much. Now, uh, at the same time, uh, when you increase awareness of something, you're going to have people that, that gravitate to it. And um, I think departments have 
again, as part of this 180 from you'll be charged with feigning illness if you take a mental health day, are now saying, you know, there is uh, we're sort of like grief. There, there is no standard way to be traumatized. So while one person may uh, be involved in an, you know, a, a shooting uh, and that's their baseline traumatic event. Uh, as you mentioned, for somebody else, it could be uh, witnessing something. It could be uh, someone on their squad being uh, you know, shot at or, or killed. And so there's, I mean, the triggers are all over the place. And I mean, I've got some examples, I think, of, of people sort of really pushing it. Uh, and you wonder why they were drawn to this line of work to begin with if, if you know, their baseline is that low. But um, I'll, I'll you know, refrain from mentioning those. Well, and that's, I mean, that's absolutely true because everybody handles situations differently. We're all made up different. Um, when I first returned to Atlanta as an assistant special agent charge, one of my enforcement groups got in a shooting on a on an early you know, ODARC 30 raid and had to kill the defendant because he was shooting at them with a 45. So four agents involved in the shooting, one, when I got to the scene, was visibly shaking. His, I mean, his hands were visibly shaking. He was upset that much. The other two guys were concerned, but, you know, they had control of their faculties. And then the fourth guy was sleeping in his cruiser when I got there. So, the, um, you know, it's – and the nice thing about, I think, here in the U.S. is most agencies finally realized if you get in a shooting and, and your supervisor comes in and takes your gun and says, you know, give me your gun. We need that for evidence. Uh, you're on desk duty. Well, now you just feel like, what the hell did I do wrong? I was defending myself or I was defending someone else. And so uh, specifically DEA has changed its policy, though, so that whoever's in charge of the site, the senior agent there, gets the shooters off site. Not that they're going home. They're just getting to a neutral site where local investigators or the press cannot ask them questions yet, give them the opportunity to psychologically get their shit back together. Uh, We eventually will take their weapons for investigative purposes but not until we get another weapon on site to replace the that, one we're getting ready to take. Steve, and that's exactly what happened to a partner of mine. That's one lesson they learned is when you're involved in a shooting and they take your weapon away, they you replace it so that you don't feel like you've done something wrong. Or, and as a cop, uh, United States and Canada, if, if you're at, if you're there without a weapon in your holster, you feel naked. You feel like mm-hmm. now you're vulnerable. You feel defenseless. And, and you, then you're standing there wondering, what did I do wrong? This was, a, you know, all I did was protect myself or I protected an innocent citizen. So I'm just, I'm glad it's finally, you know, I don't know, things are changing maybe for the better. I don't know. Yeah. And that's the thing. So let's, uh, this is getting pretty philosophical. We haven't had this kind of a philosophical discussion in a long time. And I think <laughs> it's good because a lot of times we're discussing things, but it really leads into a lot of the work that we want to talk about that you were involved in. Um, Mike, and let's talk a little bit too. Let's lay the groundwork for the Murder Accountability Project um, because that was very interesting about how it came about in 2010. It used to be a news service. Um, I think it was EW Scripts and then working, finding this interesting data, putting stuff together, and it's kind of blossomed for there. So kind of let's set the stage for that because it's the data that comes from the Murder Accountability Project that allows us then to talk about the serial killer in Chicago, which uh, we, we'll, we'll talk about here in a minute. So let's talk about the, the Murder Accountability Project. I could talk about this all day long. So um, this is one of the most interesting things I've, I've been involved in, and I've, I'd like to think I've had an interesting career. So 
I was a visiting professor at Vanderbilt University in Nashville while on a, a mini sabbatical from my home university at Western back in 2016 and was asked by a director at the Murder Accountability Project, which is based in uh, Metro DC, essentially, um, if I wanted to join. They were looking for to diversify their board of directors, and they wanted a, a Canadian who had A, a law enforcement background, and B, uh, advanced uh, academic credentials. So I met Tom Hargrove, who was the founder and, and chairman, um, and uh, this board, I mean, is, is is an absolutely fascinating interdisciplinary array of, of people who believe 100% in what we are doing. And I'll, I'll break it down for your listeners. Um, most people, I think, believe that uh, annual murder rates released by the Justice Department are pretty accurate. As the Murder Accountability Project determined... Uh, since uniform crime reporting or the standardized, like basically uh, fixed choice menu uh, of uh, criteria that are forwarded by police departments to the FBI and the Justice Department for tabulation annually, uh, that started in 1929. And it's not compulsory for municipal or state agencies or county agencies to do this. If you want FBI resources, you want their money, you want uh, their training, uh, you have to cooperate with the program. But about 40% of departments never did. So when they're publishing murder data every year, uh, there's blind spots all over the country that they don't have the data for. So what the MAP or the Murder Accountability Project does is we collect the FBI's data and we go department to department around the country collecting through freedom of information requests the data never sent to the FBI, and we plug those holes. And what we've done is compile now a searchable list of murders uh, with granular case-level data uh, going back to uh, the 70s, uh, and depending more recent cases from you know the, the 90s onward, we have better data. Uh, but now we have the real numbers of, of murder in America. And what, we've, what we're doing is... Um, a, identifying trends in terms of who hasn't been reporting their data and why to the government. Uh, who's doing the best job at solving murder? Who's doing the worst? Who's the best improved? And when I say who, I'm talking about individual departments and, and, and agencies. And then what we did is, because we had all this, this data, I mean, you can hunt and peck through it, uh, searching by UCR category uh, or Uniform Crime Report category. So you're doing research on people killed by being thrown out of windows over drug debts. I mean, so you're doing a pretty specific uh, sort of criminological um, study. Uh, you can pull up those, those files by searching under those criteria. But we thought rather than just selectively wade through this data, I mean, uh, so, I mean, millions of data points, uh, we trained a, a, a software algorithm to go looking for some specific patterns indicative of serial killers. So what the, the algorithm is based on a very simple principle. It scans these hundreds of thousands of murders that we have in our database, which are all publicly accessible at, at murderdata.org. And it looks for unsolved uh, cases or unresolved or uncleared cases in cities and counties uh, with female victims who uh, where the cause of death is strangulation. And this is 
based in the notion, rooted in the the idea, and in fact, the, the reality, uh, that the vast majority of female strangulation murders are solved quickly because they're intimate partners. The female homicides where that is the cause of death uh, have among the highest clearance rates. So when you see two or more in the same city and county clustering in space and time that are unsolved, this is two or more females who would seem have been strangled, which we know uh, serial sex offenders enjoy doing, uh, and it's sort of a preferred MO, uh, who appear to have been targeted by a stranger. So you have a stranger targeting strangers using an MO uh, customary among serial sexual murders, and both uh, at least two of the crimes are unsolved. That to us indicates that you have uh, a predictive um, or a presumptive uh, serial pattern in that particular locale. Hey, Mike, and let's let's kind of do something, too, because a lot of people pretend to know a lot about this stuff and they get terminology wrong. And so I want to lay out, too, because um, one of the things we saw was some of the like we talked about BTK or the Green River Killer or other ones. There's their MO, their method of operation, but then there's also their signature. Their MO tends right. to change over time mainly sometimes, but their signature tends to be constant, you know, more often than not. Is that still what you found? And talk to us the difference, too, about what the difference is and the importance is between understanding MO versus signature. Great question. I teach this uh, to my students uh, really sort of the first week so of classes. Uh, the the MO or, or uh, modus operandi or method of operating is essentially all of the ingredients that uh, an offender uh knows or presumes he or she needs to successfully carry out their crime. And every offender has has an MO. A shoplifter has an MO. A shoplifter may uh, hit a certain type of store, uh, may uh, elect to wear a certain type of coat with concealed compartments. I mean, but those are decisions made before they walk out the door in terms of how they're going to operate. Killers, murderers uh, are are the same. They may have a preferred weapon. They may have a preferred uh, hunting ground. They may have, like, you mentioned Raider already, a preferred uh, attire that they get into uh, for either uh, counter-investigative or, or, or sort of tactical reasons. And you're right, this, this can change as the offender evolves. Uh, they may realize that uh, you know bringing a gun is uh, not the best idea because they're loud and maybe sometimes a gun can't effectively control people the way they want, uh, so, so they may swap out that weapon. Um, but a signature, so an MO is, is what we call instrumental to the crime. It's, it's all the ingredients uh, that the offender, over the course of their criminal career, uh, and, it, and this is why it's subject to change, uh, will um, rely on to carry out their crime. But the signature is something more deep-seated. It's what we call not uh, instrumental to the crime, but an expression of the crime. And this is something that offers no value added to the successful commission of an offense. This is something that uh, has uh, some emotional, psychological, or sexual uh, symbolism and importance for the offender. So something that remains unchanging because regardless of the weapon they choose, regardless of the time of day or location in which they strike, they will do this compulsively because this is ultimately an expression of whatever underlying fantasy or um, uh, sort of identity that they have. So it could include taking uh, a um, 
piece of living tissue, so fingernails or hair or skin even, which we would call a trophy, or taking souvenirs, so a driver's license, a piece of jewelry. Uh, that's not something that they're going to do here and there. We know that they tend to be very ritualistic about that because, again, that's what's driving them, and, and that's what something they want to keep and look back on that will then inspire future crimes in which will, they can get a lot of sort of fantasy mileage out of looking at this thing, handling it, uh, and what have you. So um, this is why the sig- recognizing the signature in a serial case, rather than just zeroing in only on the MO, knowing that that can change from crime to crime, uh, this is really uh, among the best tells uh, that you're dealing with with a serial offender and someone who's not going to stop because uh, as soon as you see a, a signature, whether it be posing, again, taking um, souvenirs or trophies or uh, what have you, uh, this is, again, has a ritual dimension. And that ritual, as, as the sort of word implies, uh, is going to be repetitive and compulsive. Yeah, could you? That's exactly the point I was going to make too. It's that the mistake is saying, well, because the mo is different, we're not dealing with the same person, as opposed to looking at the signature. Because to your point, um, the Golden State Killer um, uh, changed his mo over time about how he broke into houses and what he did. But some of his particular signatures were making the husband lay down and putting uh, dishes on their back or on his back. You know. Uh, Raider had some of the things they changed their MO, but that's exactly right. It, the signature is what ties them together because that is the culmination of why they did what they did. That that it's kind of like the reward for doing everything. And then you hit a great point too. They get these trophies because they also use them to relive that moment. Dennis Raider did that all the time. He would take pictures and um, pleasure himself to those and dress up and do things. It just it's it's fascinating. I mean, it's one of the areas I'm fascinated in, too, because there's so much to learn here. And I just get tired of seeing these people that come on TV that pretend to be experts about, well, I'm an expert on serial killers. I saw a lot of those during the uh, uh, DC sniper case and everything else. They were all wrong. All, all of them were all wrong. Well, let's let's we're setting the groundwork here. So let's talk a little bit more about the Murder Accountability Project. So you were talking about that. Uh, you uh, kind of got the uh, um, this opportunity came up. So how long have you been involved uh, with the project? So it's six years now. Um, and uh, and we, we do a number of things. We, we speak, and when I say we, typically uh, Tom Hargrove, along with uh, one of us, will accompany him. Uh, I went with um, the previous vice director, um, now deceased Eric Witzig, who is ex-Metro DC homicide and, and ex-FBI, uh, to a, a couple of talks, or the three of us went to some talks. So we, we, we lecture for law enforcement. We let them know about uh, MAP as an investigative resource, uh, not just the algorithm, but again, uh, a lot of investigators will use our database to um, essentially either prove or disprove a hunch they have that an unsolved case is maybe that they're still working often a cold case involves a serial offender who struck elsewhere and it may not turn up through our algorithm which again zeroes in on specific cities and counties but again you can manually search by some really uh, specific parameters in terms of uh, cause of death motive age uh, gender of the victim etc such that if you have a really weird case um you can find those same uh, essentially components of the MO and look for in other cities and states around the country. Is it, does this just focus on the U.S. or does it include Canada? Just the U.S. I would need another two-hour spot to talk about uh, my 
um, experience in trying to get a map Canada off the ground in, in a country where freedom of information uh, means absolutely nothing. Uh, and the government's hand-wringing obsession with individual privacy will outweigh the public interest, uh, including stopping killers every day. Well, it's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> it's just, yeah, holy it's, cow. But you know, it's, Steve, but it goes back to that. It's a very cultural thing then, because it's like here, it's like FOIA requests and public records requests are stock and trade for journalists, for people doing research mm -hmm. and everything else. In fact, um, Mike, you'd appreciate this. We had, uh, I was telling you about this. We had Jack Garcia on yesterday. He was a Cuban born. Um, born, lived there until he was nine years old, father escaped from the country, came to the United States, tried to get on the FBI, couldn't get on the first time because they said, hey, you're not a citizen yet. He got a citizenship in a year. He gets on. And then I come to find out a lot of the agents like him and stuff, maybe a couple years into the job, were filing FOIA requests on their own agency to find out what was said about them. And Jack found out is that they believe because he came out of Cuba, he was some kind of sleeper agent. But it's funny you mentioned FOIA because here it's like, I can't imagine um, places where there, I just could not imagine in the United States not having open records and access to records because that's just the way it's been for 200 years. Well, and the trickle-down effect of that is uh, a, a culture of absolute secrecy and misdirection among law enforcement in Canada as well, because they know, particularly the larger agencies like the RCMP, who are going through a public inquiry right now about their handling of a, of a, of a mass murder, uh, and um, not unlike uh, what's gone on in Uvalde, Texas. I mean, just complete disinformation being provided to the public. Uh, but they nothing will change because... Um, no one can peek behind the curtain. For journalists file FOIA requests for information on this case, who knew what, when, and uh, it's a matter of operational secrecy. It, it interferes with, we've got now uh, separate spin-off open investigations that might compromise. There's always going to be a reason. And so they know that, and they can, um, they can just either not tell the public anything, or they can um, provide whatever propaganda that they want. Well, you know, some of the some of the things that get out in the media now, I, th I think, help to facilitate uh, either the crime that's being discussed in the point of of giving that person their 15 minutes of fame or they and or they result in copycat crimes because somebody did get 15 minutes of fame. Would you agree with that? I guess it depends on the crime. Um, I mean. Mass shooters are a whole other species of, of of offender that I think we're really just coming to terms with. Uh, I mean, the, the, the traditional homes and homes typologies of, of, of mass murders, I, I think, still is pretty good. Uh, but there really is, we're seeing hybrids between, you know, pseudo-commando and family annihilator or disciple and ideological mass murder. And to the, to the point that... Um, interdicting these people is becoming increasingly difficult, especially when, again, as you mentioned, the crimes are constantly in the news cycle and people with half-baked ideas, um, you know, uh, maybe, I, I don't have the answers on that. What we do know is uh, I think people overestimate the amount of conventional mainstream media consumed by would-be uh, shooters. Most of these guys are doom-scrolling uh, on some specific uh, website and where they're getting their ideas or, or commiserating and, and, and interacting with other like-minded people. They're not watching CNN at an airport and saying, when I get back, I'm going to 
you know, I'm going to outdo this guy. Um, it's, it's, that's not, I think where they're, they're generating their interest or where they're, um, expecting to, to find their, their, their 15 minutes. Yeah. That, that makes, that makes perfect sense. So I mean, you usually right. see where they're, they've been on a blog or they've been on some type of social media, even if it's the dark web, getting ideas and, and even to a certain degree, announcing their intentions, uh, and you've already been, I guess, the latest example. Yeah, the manifesto has become a, uh, uh, it's one of those red flags. But then the question is, in a sea of red flags, how do you pick out the one that's the most important one? How do you start tying this all together? And it's like, we're so over inundated. It's like the the school shooting down in Florida that happened Parkland. Uh, tips were called into the FBI. They knew about this stuff. He had posted on Instagram that he was going to cut himself and do harm and things like that. So I think the social media has put a different, made it so much more complex than what it was. Um, I know you're getting ready to say something, Mike. Let's do that. And then I want to start laying the groundwork for Chicago. Yeah, no, we can just jump to Chicago. I was just going to mention, yeah, that the the manifesto is is really now, since Elliot Roger almost, uh, yeah, to use your term, uh, stock and trade. And, um, it's, I mean, I wrote a book on that to, called murder in plain English that looked at how serial killers and mass murderers, uh, communicate and telegraph their intentions as well as how they diarize, uh, their crimes and, and, and not just through journaling or, or taunting letters, but I mean, uh, the serial arsonist and, and mass murderer, John Orr, who actually self-published a bunch of, uh, books, uh, where, uh, about a serial arsonist and and basically they were um they were chronologies of his crimes and he's the he's the villain in the in, in his own book yeah somewhat of an autobiography i think there was a lady uh she was convicted of murder because she wrote about doing i think the basically the same murder in a book so it was kind of easy to tie to so let's let's do this because th- this is one of the early one of the early successes was Gary, Indiana. They found 14 homicides that were tied together and they identified a suspect who led them through everything. So, I mean, it showed that this works. They've got a conviction on a guy out there, 14 of those. But let's, when did, what did, so let's talk about the process of looking at Chicago. Cause when you look at murders and everything else, Chicago's obviously a, a target rich environment. Uh, no pun intended. Seriously. It's like, there is just, there's obviously a lot of homicides, everything from gun violence to the other types. So, what, when did you start looking at Chicago and what's things started popping up that started telling you, hey, we, there is, there's a there there? So there was a number of notable clusters that we identified uh, pretty quickly. Again, Tom was the first to identify um, Gary, Indiana, uh, the murders committed by Darren Dion Van there. Uh, but some other notable cities included Atlanta, Cleveland. Uh, and Chicago as the largest cluster with 51 strangulations since uh, 2000. Um, and so that's one that uh, I mean, we found very compelling. And we, we and I say we, they're, they're, they're signed off and, and, and authored by Tom Hargrove. Uh, but letters go out to the chiefs of all these departments saying, hey, uh, you may or may not be aware of this, but this is who we are. This is what our software has identified. This is, you know, these are the law enforcement agencies we've worked with and where we've uh, provided training and speaking. Uh, you may want to look into this. And Chicago was initially not receptive. There's a new chief of detectives there, uh, Brendan Dinahan, who's um, very open-minded, very progressive, and knows that, yeah, there, there's something here. These are not 51 
random uh, strangulations. And, and in fact, there's, there's, there's patterns within that pattern in terms of there's, there's a group of uh, Latina females, there's a group of, of black women. Uh, in one case, there's a double event in the same day. Uh, in many cases, uh, the body's either left as is at the primary crime scene or moved to uh, a dumpster or, or concealed and then set on fire. So you've got a number of, of consistencies in terms of MO, and I would say that the fire in an urban in an urban and built environment is probably more likely a signature than MO. If anything, you're attracting attention to the scene, uh, and you're not going to destroy evidence. So um, there's a lot going on in there, and the jury's still out as to whether this is one or two offenders. Uh, but as you mentioned, Morgan, it was the the focus of. Um, a, a number of news stories, but most recently the Discovery ID series, The Hunt for the Chicago Strangler. Let's let's talk a little bit more about that. But I want to rewind too, there because for some reason, uh, and we've seen this in many many cases, we have to give a name to a serial killer. Somebody has to coin a phrase. Um, uh, first of all, it was um, um, you know the East Side rapist, uh, the East Area rapist. Uh, um, the original Night Stalker, Iran, then 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 they coined Golden State Killer, and I think a Dennis Rader coined his own because he, he wrote that in this letter: bind them, torture them, kill them. That's right. Um, what is what is the cultural reason that we feel we need to name serial killers? Yes, yeah, so I've done some work on that, and, and really, I mean, uh, we are humans. That is, I mean, are driven by stories, and. Uh, particularly when you're dealing with something so uh, odious and heinous and outrageous that I think most people cannot understand. Uh, I mean, they understand the nature of murder, but again, the the psychological sort of underpinnings and, and the, the, the way that these offenders operate is, is really beyond sort of, I think, their moral understanding or, or what they're prepared to uh, come to terms with. So uh, by assigning these monikers to them it's uh sort of name recognition it becomes the currency through which these stories are told uh and then yeah it, it sort of cements them in this pantheon of villains uh whereby um this is how people come to terms with them. the the this is what this monster is called uh you know the same as the ancients would have names for their gods and demigods and um heroes and villains. I mean, life is about heroes and villains and uh, assigning names to them. And that's, that's how we make sense of the world. So I, I, I don't think it's any more psychologically complex than that. Well, Do you th this, it ahead, seems to me like, it seems to me like it's a journalist thing that, you know, they want to coin the phrase and, and then take credit for it and get a little byline in there, you know? Certainly that's, journalists popularized it and, and, and sort of uh, fomented interest in, these people through those names because yeah they they make for great headlines um i mean the evidence overwhelmingly points to jack the ripper being uh, a concoction of the media uh i mean there's no question the murders happened but them being all linked to a single offender with that name who wrote letters to the media i mean uh, all the evidence points to to that being a, a you know a hoax yeah the truth is, too, it helps us as as the readers and the, uh, you know, the, the voyeurs, I, I guess, to a certain degree, it helps us to categorize because nowadays there's so many of them, it's hard to keep track of everybody. 
And that's what I mean by the the sort of um, it becomes the currency through which uh, comparisons are made. We've been doing it here today. I mean, we're all ex-law enforcement. We could come up with any any number of clinical or investigative terms for for these guys. And you know, we're talking BTK and Night Stalker and Golden State, and you know, now Chicago Strength. Yeah, you know what we really ought to call them: Asshat One, Asshat Two. You know, and just give a generic. You know, it's like they name uh, hurricanes. We ought to just come up with a name. But you yeah. know, this, here's what it reminds me of, though, too, uh, Mike. Did you come across some of this when you were talking? That uh, I, I'm writing a couple thriller books right now. I've got a contract to write two of them, and I, I did a lot of studying too because I liked I liked understanding the way books are written. Like you said, it's about story. Did a lot of research, and a Joseph Campbell was totally underrated. He he was never appreciated until Star Wars came out when you found out Steven Spielberg, um, you know, and uh, George Lucas used uh, the hero's journey, uh, the power of myth, the hero with the thousand faces. He wrote about the compelling need for people. We are by nature storytellers, the human races. And he looked at the way stories were told and that's how he came up with the hero's journey. So if you watch the original Star Wars, that is absolutely Joseph Campbell, you know, coming full circle, um, and I, I just think that's, this is what, because the other thing too, is I look at this professionally, like I'm interested, Murph's interested, you're interested professionally, but, but there's also this unnatural fascination with serial killers to where we listen to shows and, you know, there are podcasts out there, which we're not one of, we do not profit off the misery of others. We don't sit here and talk about cases and get all breathless and drool because we're talking about a serial killer. It's like, there's some reverence for them. Whereas when you talk to Dave Reichert and you talk about somebody who was there for 49 crime scenes, the mm-hmm. carnage that was visited on their area and stuff, there is nothing fascinating about these guys. What is the fascination, a kind of a long way of leading to this question too, but you know, what is the fascination with society with serial killers? Why is it that we make all of these stories about them? Why is it we write all these books about them? Why do we have all these series about them? And not just, I like the investigative investigation discovery like you did, the more the documentary stuff, let's talk about what's going on. But it's like, they. how many times has Ted Bundy been redone into some kind of a series? So I talk about this a lot in uh, my latest book where I look at the history of, of, of true crime. And it's, uh, I theorize it's existed essentially in four different waves since about the 1850s. And this current wave, actually, that the last two waves, the, the third wave being in the 80s, which is really, again, where you see this sensationalization and celebritization of serial killers uh, through those tacky magazine shows in the 90s, um, through Geraldo's specials and, and, and what have you. And, and I think... Uh, I'm sorry. Anytime that, you say Geraldo, uh, all I think of is the name they called him, Horrendo Revolver, and then Al Capone's <laughs> Vault. Nobody has been more wrong in the history of true crime than Horrendo Revolver. That's true. Yeah, it's uh, that's true. That Al Capone's Vault, and then his original one was uh, Murder in America, and this was uh, the prime time interview with Charles Manson that really, I think, rebooted interest in the in the Manson case, and and. You could almost set your watch to that's where the third wave of of true crime began in this fascination with with serial killers. And really, um, I think that fascination is a product of the storytelling platforms where you have, again, these these lurid uh, tabloid series uh, that would fixate not again on the investigative dimensions or on the the voice of victims or the experience of uh, of the trauma endured by survivors and and police and communities uh but 
they just wanted to tell monster stories. I mean, it's the Universal Monsters series from the 30s uh, on your television. And instead of, you know, Bride of Frankenstein, it's Eileen Wernos or, uh, like you said, Ted Bundy. Uh, and you're right. If I, it, It's just disappointing that as, uh, first of all, for, for um, people creating content and, uh, and pr- producers and, and, and broadcasters, it's disappointing that, uh, there doesn't seem to be any intellectual curiosity beyond telling the same stories again. How many series on Bundy or Ramirez or Gacy can be made again? It's just, uh, I mean, I guess they're trying to recycle um, the greatest hits for a new a new generation. I don't know. And besides that, Ramirez had bad teeth. I mean, that's that's a turnoff for me right there. Um, <laughs> hey, but I will, I, I actually, I, I have a, a little point I want to make, because you mentioned Eileen Warnos, and they were saying that she was the first female serial killer. I actually take exception with that because the department I was at, Garden City, Kansas Police, there's a book been written about it. It's called Mommy's Little Angels. It's about Diana Lombrera. And Diana's basically, uh, the what she did was she would take out insurance policies on nieces or nephews. She would be watching them. She would bring them into the ER a couple days before saying, hey, they're sick, they're this, they're that. And then two days later, she'd bring them in and they'd be lifeless. And she did this when when it happened in our town. Um, Dr. Eva Vockel, she is the one who broke this open. She did uh, a forensic, uh, she did the autopsy, actually. She did an examination of the eyes and saw basically what's the, the petite, when you get the broken petechiae in the eyes, it's indic- indicative of smothering. And they did some more research. They found four more cases to where she had done the same thing. And so my question was, how was that not a serial crime? Here's a lady who did, she had a preferred uh, method of operation. She had a signature. Uh, She had a cooling off period between them. Uh, And I'm going, how was that? She did five kids. They went back and they they, uh, exhumed the bodies, did autopsies. Five kids. And I'm going, how, how would that not be a serial crime? Well, it is by definition, which is just uh, two or more victims at different times and places. Uh, The U.S. code definition is three, but that's largely administrative. That allows the FBI to get involved or or local law enforcement once they get to three to get the FBI involved. But the definition used by homicide scholars is is two. And you've just ticked all the boxes to make her qualify. And yeah, um, there's known or suspected... um, um, Black Widow serial poisoners going back to the 19th century. So no, she, she's not by any stretch the first female serial killer. Again, that's a, a sort of uh, misnomer used to to move books or to get eyeballs on uh, the same old true crime show. Well, it's, it's sensationalized. It's like you know, t- you know, can 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 looking at your dog kill you? Tune in at ten. Everything's always a tease with the most worst things that could happen to you. Well, let's let's talk about Chicago. So you started, and you you made a distinction that I want to hone in on. Uh, the Murder Accountability Project is not an investigative resource. You guys are not uh, guns for hire. You don't come in and do this. What you simply do is you look at the data, you find it, you understand it, you put it into context, and then the goal, right, is to get the agency involved. So let's first of all tell me if that's correct, and second of all, let's let's drill down a little bit more. I want to talk about Chicago, what that process has been like, because there's been ups and downs. I know when I uh, had breakfast with Thomas, there were some ups, there were some downs of getting Chicago to actually believe that oh, you guys are just a bunch of academics, you know, or people who had you know bookworms, and you're coming in here to tell us we got murders, we got a serial murder. Yeah. So 
we are absolutely uh, nonpartisan. Uh, we have no political affiliations. We are not guns for hire. We do not uh, actively investigate beyond identifying patterns and then turning over our findings to law enforcement. Um, and for the most part, they are very receptive because uh, about half of us are, are former law enforcement, including I already mentioned the late Eric Witzig, who uh, you know was one of the honchos of uh, the VICAP program at the FBI. So, I mean, if there's a guy who knows patterns and MOs and signatures, it, it was him. Um, but yeah, there's been some ups and downs uh, in Chicago. As I mentioned, the current chief of detectives there is receptive. He appears in the series on ID. Um, and quite frankly, we're glad after a few years that attention, media attention is finally being uh, paid to this, um, because for whatever reason, uh, this isn't the leading crime story in Chicago. And as you mentioned, it's, I mean, there's, you know, a dozen shootings every weekend. I mean, there, there's other, uh, things to distract. And, and I think that's precisely why within the, the department itself, 51 strangulations, uh, of body of females who were left outside, many of whom set on fire, goes undetected by its own investigators because they're spread across 20 years and mixed and matched with hundreds of other murders every year. That's that's pretty significant. It's just staggering the numbers when you think about that. When you go through and you look, at, I think I pulled this. Uh, uh, I think I pulled it off your site too. Some work that I'm doing um, with the Virginia Association of Chiefs of Police. But when you look at the number of unsolved homicides in the United States, because I pulled that data. Um, right off the Murder Accountability Project, murderdata.org, for those of you who want to go look at it. It shows you the number of homicides, the number that have been solved. So you get, get an open. And the homicide, they kind of went down. They're going back up now again, obviously. But the thing that concerns me is the rate of increase of the number of unsolved homicides. I mean, you and we're, and you compare that now, you draw a line that goes with it that shows the number of resources being dedicated to it. We're kind of at a critical point, though, aren't we, Mike, to where it's like we are now with everything that's gone on socially and um, we try and stay pretty much apolitical on the show. But people do talk about defund the police. People do talk about, hey, we want to take budget away and move it from here to there. There are implications anytime you don't solve cold cases, anytime you're unable to solve active cases, anytime you pull people off of investigative stuff to have them respond to these calls to service. Where do you think we're at right now? I want to drill down more on Chicago, but I kind of want to set the groundwork for that in terms of what's happening out there. Um, do you see it getting better anytime soon? Is it going to get worse? Or are we at a very critical point right now? We're absolutely at uh, the most critical point. So um, 2016 had been the lowest clearance rate um, for homicides or solved rate, if you will, um, in the history of the UCR program since 1929. Uh, then it, it improved a little bit, and then 2020 uh, was even lower. So that's the lowest in recorded history at just over 50%. So that's, I mean, some departments fare better, uh, you know, are still around 75, 80%. But uh, overall, uh, departments across the country have plummeting solid rates to the point that nationally speaking, one in two killers, and, and we're not talking to be clear here, we're not talking about offenders uh, who are arrested. Uh, and charges are dropped or they're acquitted. Uh, these are offenders who are never identified. So one in two killers never identified, much less uh, actively investigated. Um, so uh, that is uh, mind-boggling. And I mean, if it gets much worse, and in some cities it is worse. So you've got some cities that you know are 30 40% that um, 
are significant enough in number that then they, they, they drag down the entire national picture, despite some agencies still performing relatively well under very strenuous conditions out there right now. Um, so, I mean, this is a, there needs to be a national conversation on this because you're right. You, you pull resources, uh, as I mentioned in my last book, uh, and as I've mentioned before, frequently and sadly, uh, cold case squads are are seen, unfortunately, by bureaucrats as indulgences that can be done away with when it's time to uh, cut costs, and unfortunately, are among the first casualties when there's um, when the you know some pieces start getting taken off the board. I've got a question for you about the about your method. So, and I'm looking at uh, your website here on the Murder Accountability Project. And it looks like Tom Hargrove created this algorithm that you guys use based on information you get from the Uniform Crime Report, which is produced by the FBI, right? Is that right? The Uniform Crime Report is the reporting system to the FBI, which, again, is voluntary. But the system is still used in some version by those agencies that don't report because the data we get back from them has all the, everything we're looking for. So it's, uh, it amazes me... <laughs> that you guys are doing this and, and producing a very viable and useful product that could lead to solving some cold case murder cases. But the Bureau or other law enforcement agencies here in the United States haven't come to you and say, we love what you're doing. Can we get a copy of the algorithm? But then again, you guys, I can see that might compartmentalize it to a degree that it's not useful to everybody, whereas you guys are looking at the U.S. as a whole. I mean, it, has anybody approached you guys and asked for something like that, or are they just going with what you give them? They go with what we give them. Uh, they've asked us to run, uh, like, for assistance, research assistance, and, and, and again, corroborating either a pattern they believe exists or that they think might exist. Uh, remember, I mean, the FBI has got the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program that functions in, in a similar fashion, but, uh, I mean, they're looking at th- over 300 data points. The whole... The recipe for our algorithm is is uh, keep it simple. You don't need 300 data points. You need about six or seven in order, to, again, to cast the wide net. Now, are you going to get some false positive? Yes. And that's uh, where researchers like myself then look at those clusters and say, okay, uh, you know, maybe this one isn't a strangulation. This one actually, as it turns out, was... Uh, later cleared and they just didn't update their record. Uh, so we delve into the clusters by, you know, through again, uh, access to records to get names to go with uh, the victims. What did they have in common? Uh, you know, we don't have any information on the website with respect to the nature of the crime scene. So that's stuff that we can get either through police reports or media reports uh, to either um, screen in that cluster as meriting investigation and we'll alert the, the agency of record, or we can screen it out as, again, a, a false positive. Well, you got to love it. You're using one of the most basic principles in law enforcement, the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. And well, it's working. I went through the original VICAP, the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program training, and the original form, you, rec- you needed a degree and three assistants to fill that thing out. And then they came out with a new improved form. And it wasn't, it, it was still like, you're killing me here. How much, I mean, look, it's done some good because it, one of the things it does, it can help tie some non-obvious things together, uh, you know, based upon the crime scene, the things that you find there. But going back to Chicago though, Mike, um, let's, let's, let's explore this a little bit more. I, I go back to what were initially, what was the receptivity of you guys going into Chicago? What did they feel about um, you guys coming in from the outside with your findings? 
Uh, well, Tom did most of sort of uh, the legwork on that. And I mean, I have the paraphrased version is when he initially went to them uh, with the data was uh, there is no active unidentified serial killer in Chicago, period. And as we kept going back with improved data, and uh, again, we began identifying some of the victims and confirming, again, through victimology, some commonalities, uh, and then there being some natural administrative shuffling within the department, uh, the f- things just sort of align to the extent that now there is an active uh, investigation into this. Um, and I'm hopeful uh, through some recent d- discussions I've had uh, and what was publicly revealed in the series that uh, you know an arrest is forthcoming, I would hope, within the next, I don't know, 24 months. What? Why, is it, why has this been so complicated to get done? I mean, 24 months, uh, is it just the lack of physical evidence? Is it the complexity of where all the bodies were? What is contributing to the time that it's taking to close in on this suspect and be able to file? So this is one of the outstanding questions is, and we don't have an answer on this, and it could be because they don't know or they're not prepared to reveal, but 51 sexual strangulations and no DNA, which to me seems very strange. So there either is DNA that they're working, uh, I'm being careful about what I can say publicly, or, because again, this is an open question, uh, or we're dealing with an offender uh, who's um, deploying very effective forensic countermeasures, and consistently so over 51, at least 51. We now suspect there are additional victims south of the city and the suburbs that have a similar MO, uh, but at least 51, and, and to not leave any trace evidence to me seems very strange. So um, the answer lies in in that question somehow. Well, that's the thing is after 51, um, I it, it's hard it's hard to keep consistent when you look at all of the others. Whether you know name the different killers and the different uh, cases, there always seems to be some type of evidence left around. Now the question the, the the issue was like in BTK is they had DNA but they had no real way to test it and who to, and uh, the original lieutenant that was in charge of that did not want to burn up the DNA because they had nobody to compare it against because the methods weren't that good. They've gotten better. Uh, same thing with uh, the Golden State Killer, same thing with Ridgeway. Some, there's always something left, and that, that's what boggles the um, um, uh, imagination here right now as I'm sitting here going, I can't believe is that there are 51. And this, you don't think that somebody doing this is exactly the type of crimes. I'm not saying that they're a Rhodes Scholar, but they're not exactly um, – they might be streetwise, but the ability to do that for 51s, I'm just sorry. I just, like to your point, I'm not buying it. They, they're, they're either not telling us um, or this guy is the best, uh, the most forensically sound um, criminal that is ex- in his existence right now because 51 crimes is considering where it was all done and there's no DNA. Yeah, it just, it just, it doesn't wash. So, um, I mean, there. Are, this is one of the many questions raised by this by this cluster again never mind the police that are overwhelmed uh in that city with other other crimes you're telling me like local merchants 
because the area of, we're dealing with is, 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 I mean, for a city of that size, not too extreme. At, at least uh, many of them, including the double event I mentioned, are, are within a, a matter of blocks. So you're telling me like a local food vendor or someone hasn't picked up on the fact, hey, here's another body. Like someone at the grassroots level in the city uh, had to have said, hey, there, something's going on here. But no one seems to have taken notice. I mean, 51 essentially overlooked anonymous victims. I mean, it's a pretty, um, I mean, it's, it, I think an indictment of that community, quite frankly. You know, but I'll tell you what it is, too. We had an episode, uh, episode 60, uh, Natasha Herzig. She was, um, growing up, she was, family were Christian. She was a missionary, went to uh, Jamaica. They, they did all sorts of great stuff. And she gets, long story short, she gets kidnapped gets literally gets kidnapped at gunpoint is um forced to engage in human trafficking into prostitution um and then when she comes out she's in the adult industry once she gets rescued she's in because she didn't know anything else she had no worth and the way she got treated by people the, the the comments i saw when they found out that oh she was in the adult industry with without realizing the trauma she went through for 2 years in terms of being trafficked, being forced by this guy to commit insane acts. And so I kind of bring that around to say this. That's the thing that kind of irritates me is that we have lost the ability, I think, the empathy to say, you know, I've watched, I'm a big fan of Michael Connolly, read every uh, Harry Bosch book, oh, yeah. watched all the series, right? His his statement is, and I think it ought to be the statement, either everybody counts or nobody counts. And I'm afraid that you get into some of these places and you don't count unless you're a certain socioeconomic uh, demographic. Yeah. So first of all, uh, I would, yeah, you can't be ex-LEO and, and not love everything produced by Michael Connolly. I mean, just philosophically, uh, operationally, he just, he, he nails it. I want to be Harry Bosch. Yeah. <laughs> I pre-order all his books as soon as they're available. Um, but yeah, you're right. And uh, it it seems to be increasingly that way. I'm, it, I've, I've talked about this before is people righteously demand diversity in their soft drink ads and sitcoms. Uh, but when it comes to uh, crime stories, you're right. Unless it's the, uh, you know, murder in paradise on Dateline, uh, they're not interested. 51 women of color raped and murdered in uh, Southside Chicago. That's doesn't really register with them kind of springboarding what you said. Look, Murph and I did a whole uh, little Patreon episode on Gabby Taverdi about her kidnapping and everything. And somebody coined the phrase, and I think it was correct, it was blonde, blonde girl syndrome. Because she was blonde, she was a girl, she was white, um, got a lot of attention. And which irritates me because I'm thinking about all of these other homicides that deserve to be solved that don't get anywhere near the visibility, the awareness, the attention, because they don't fit into a nice little box that the, and this is, I, I, I put this on the media because if it bleeds, it leads, you know, in the media, you know, that's why Steve and I joke live, you know, live PD when it was on pretty popular show became the most popular show on A&E and obviously it's on reels now, but that's why there's no such thing as a show called live FD. You know, nobody wants to watch a fire department sitting around in their easy chairs, eating their Mac and cheese, you know, watching the, you know, wheel of fortune. People I think get addicted to this stuff, but the thing that kind of irritates me about Chicago is with the murder rate they have, you think that they would want to solve 51 cases. Is it this, is this, 
is it the syndrome of the king has no clothes, or is it more of not in my backyard? Uh, you know, you go do your stuff, but don't come into my jurisdiction and tell me what to do. I mean, you can only put your head in the sand for so long, but the fact is 51 women are still dead. Yeah, I mean, there is an, there really is no other, um, I'll use the term again, indictment of a city, its police force, its uh its elected leaders that have a serial killer on the loose and a serial killer you didn't even know about. So uh, yeah, you can imagine why, uh, and this is what we found in Gary, Indiana, uh, they don't want to hear it. And uh, because the narrative crumbles at that point. And, um, and really it's, it's, it's the, the mark of integrity, I think, to, to say, Hey, you know, maybe we did get it wrong. And yet there is something going on uh beneath our noses and thanks. And that's exactly what happened in Cleveland. They immediately were receptive, uh, got the FBI involved, formed a task force, and then um, an arrest was made uh, for one murder, uh, a murder that matched the MO of many of the others in the pattern, uh, and there's been none since. So we're, we're confident that that was um, the offender. Well, we're not into giving uh, offenders airtime, so we don't need to know his name. People can search Al Gore's amazing internet if they want to find that stuff out. Um, what is the what is the current status of things right now in terms of? Um, you hit a very important point. Since the arrest, there have been no additional cases. What was kind of the um, uh, the rhythm of uh, homicides that were happening? You had you had uh, thirty. I think it was, I was just looking here, by 2007, more than 30 women had been strangled. And then from 2007 until the arrest, there were uh, another 21. So what has kind of been the frequency uh, in terms of these uh, cases that are connected in Chicago? How often were they happening? Sporadic. And that's why, um, again, we've now widened the net to look at um, the suburbs to the south, because the one thing they have, uh, well, they have many, many things in common, but they're all near transit hubs. And the thought was that the offender is relying on public transportation, uh, offending in close proximity to uh, the stops, uh, and then now is riding um, the L basically out of town or as far as it'll go on the line and, and is offending there. Um, and there's actually a Scandinavian study, actually, sorry, a Dutch study just a, a couple of years ago that looked at uh, the common characteristics of public sexual assault sites, including sexual homicide sites. And uh, so there's a number of things that you would expect. So presence, uh, open-air drug markets, presence of graffiti, uh, which I mean, is, is a good indicator of a ne neglected space. Uh, but um, one of the top things was uh, public transit stops, because there's absolutely... I mean, it's uh, it's the great equalizer. Um, anyone can get on a bus or, or a streetcar and uh, encounter all walks of life there, including a preferred victim type. Uh, and really, there's there's no way to control that. And so it's it's not surprising that when, if you don't see offenses actually on uh, the conveyance itself, it's it's going to occur nearby where you've got again um, people waiting, people who are who are very vulnerable. 
You know, and that's very interesting too, because the Highway Serial Killer Initiative, when you look at some of the maps on that, a lot of those obviously are around interstates, but I was working with uh, John Clark before he retired as the executive director of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And John used to be the head of the U.S. Marshals, the director of U.S. Marshals, but he had never seen a map before of all the long-term missing children. And when I put that map together for him, I said, here's uh, this pulled from your cases, Here's it all plotted out. You know, Mike, it almost had the same feel as the highway serial killer map. In other words, so many of these missing kids were close to major interstates, major thoroughfares, um, you know, along major transit hubs. And I think that's one of the things that's changed this type of crime is the availability of transportation. Bonnie and Clyde forever changed uh, bank robbery and the jurisdiction of the FBI. Why? Because of the motor, the motor car, the vehicle that could now cross state lines very easily. Um, you know, you you had mobile criminals now. And I think this is one of the things that's complicated the investigations into some things. But things like this, where it's public transportation, you're finding these guys. It seems to me is that why aren't we focusing more on that? I mean, I guess I, I get the idea they're stretched for resources, but it seems to me when you've got things that are predictable and easy to rule in or rule out very quickly, why are we not spending more times, especially in large jurisdictions like New York, L.A., Seattle, Dallas, you know, places like that, ruling those things in and out quickly. Is it just be people that don't want to be shown up, say, well, hey, you're coming in to tell us how we do our job? I, on the other hand, would be going, look, if we've got an unsolved murder and you can help me solve it, get your ass in here, sit down, and let's roll up our sleeves and get to work. Yeah. And uh, to be clear, most agencies, uh, I think, have that approach now where the, they are completely, uh, they appreciate what we do. And this is why we do a lot of outreach and uh, speak at. Uh, you know, law enforcement conferences and and and, and network uh, within law enforcement. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the NYPD realized years ago. I mean, that they needed their own transit police department, and and I, I think I've recognized that the subway system there is its own city or a city unto itself, its own ecosystem that requires its own uh, police department. But uh, smaller communities, you're right. Um, whether they be bus terminals, whether they be um, I'm not talking like a Greyhound terminal, which ironically is out of business in Canada now. Um, speaking of highways, uh, whether it be so, a, like a, a transit bus terminal, a, a subway stop, what have you, um, they don't seem to, you're right, recognize that as uh, a police priority. You may see security there or what have you, but you don't have the same type of presence recognizing that, um, yeah, you've got people coming into town that maybe, uh, you want to at least lay eyes on, or you got people leaving town who shouldn't be. Um, and obviously crime just occurring uh, in those places and because that's what the data show and there's no getting around that. And um, I mean, this is what they call evidence-based policing. And I've got a colleague who specializes in this, which is basically crunching uh, numbers in terms of where, how, and, and what type of crime occurs. Uh, what types of places are what they call crime attractors versus crime generators and providing the data to police so that they can deploy accordingly rather than just saying, well, it's Friday night, let's just throw 100 cars on the streets and hope for the best. You can maybe use those resources uh, with greater discretion. Well, hopefully what we'll find out with this is that, uh, like I said, they've made one arrest. Um, nothing has happened since then. But like you said, it was sporadic. So let's hope there's nothing else tied to this because that's a good sign that you're on the right track. You got the right guy. But as with anything, it's a great story, like you say, but investigation discovery, and it's on Discovery Plus, they did a series about this. 
So Mike, tell us, how did this, this series with Discovery come about? Because this was just released last December. Yeah, and, and just to clarify, the arrest was in Cleveland. There has not been an arrest in, in um, Chicago. Oh, so okay. I think we sort of conflated the two. There. Oh, I'm sorry. My mistake. All right. So no arrest in Chicago yet, but the arrest has been made in Cleveland. That's right. So um, with respect to Chicago, there really, as I mentioned, have been very little uh, in the way of conventional media uh, coverage of these cases. Uh, and then I was uh, approached, as was Tom Hargrove, by um, some producers uh, who I think saw one of the paltry original stories or somehow the, the, it landed on their radar. And then they were drawn to murderdata.org for as basically the authority on the case. Because uh, aside from um, what's been in the media, we publish intermittent stories about our finds on on the homepage. Um, so they said, you know what, this needs to be, this story needs to be told uh, as a as a tastefully done, uh, proper uh, procedural limited series. So uh, essentially a mini series, self-contained. Uh, over several episodes, um, and they came to our respective cities and uh, interviewed us and, and made some great progress uh, in terms of uh, narrowing down uh, possible suspects uh, and uh, possible links again to, to, to other crimes. I don't. Um, I'd, I would be doing it in injustice by trying to summarize it. It's, it's an excellent series, and I think uh, your listeners uh, can check it out. And, and it needs to be told over again, like six hours. But uh, you'll see where they go with it. And uh, I think I've really um, it, it's, it's provided the momentum needed again to the point that I am now very optimistic. This has gone from we don't have an active serial killer in the city of Chicago to something that I think is, is now, well, we know it's fully acknowledged. The FBI are involved. Uh, there's a task force and I, I think uh, we're going to see a resolution. Um, yeah. The, the, the thing is called, it's called the hunt for the Chicago strangler. Now, were you involved in the production of this? Were you guys like onsite uh, advisors? Uh, what was your involvement with it beyond the initial discussion? I'm as I am on a, a couple of other series on ID, uh, the talking head basically. <laughs> um, but in this case, rather than opining on cases, I have no direct involvement in, I essentially bring the audience along and explain how the discovery was made as does Tom, uh, and then offer sort of the, uh, investigative and criminological analysis of the type of crime we're dealing with, the type of offender we're likely dealing with, uh, and, and, and some of the other procedural questions that, uh, only a, a series again, that devotes six hours to a case can, uh, can offer. Yeah, that's the thing, too, is anytime you're talking about cases and, and they're reduced to sound bites on network television, that you're lucky if you get three minutes. You can't really dive into the details. And even made for TV, you get a one hour just special about it doesn't really do it justice. So in terms of in terms of covering the case, how well did Discovery cover this case as far as you're concerned? It's very thorough. And again, uh, tastefully done. Um, true crime, this latest wave of true crime, including on uh, ID, has, I think, matured a lot. Uh, producers recognize that audiences are smart. They uh, are uh, discerning. Uh, and yeah, not every series needs to be hokey and, you know, nuns with guns or knives with wives or, or, or wives with knives. Um but yeah, this series, as well as another uh, series I appeared on on Discovery called Children of the Snow, which looked at another limited series, uh, which looked at the uh, Oakland County child killer case in the 70s. Uh, those are two of, I think, 
I rank those as really sort of, I think, the best examples of the investigative value of properly executed true crime documentaries. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that because, yeah, for a while it was all of this um, uh, really hokey stuff. Uh, and just like, I don't want it to be so clinical and sterile that it's unexciting, but if you can make it informative and educational and really bring people inside the case to where they feel like they're on the front row with you. It, it kind of reminds me, it's like you sitting there with your dad as he's pulling out the case files and reading those. That's kind of the feel I want. I want to feel like I'm being on the inside, not like <laughs> nuns with guns. I've never heard that before. <laughs> I, I don't think that's actually a series, but I mean, it's, it, it would have surprised you. It's going to be not. now that you said it. Yeah. I bet you, I bet you that's been pitched. I can guarantee you someone has pitched that, just given the way how saturated the market is. Uh, nuns with guns. Bank robberies pulled off by nuns with guns. You know, there's a – well, Steve and I both did a, an interview. I don't know if you got that back, Steve. I got my note back saying, well, we're looking for more somebody that's done stuff on hostage negotiation. And it's like, uh, okay. Um, yeah, they told us They told us right off the bat, yeah, you guys probably aren't going to fit here, but we might use it for something in the future. That's what I just got the note back today. And so it's like, but I, I like to see something fun. So, but let's talk about you now. Let's talk a little bit about this. What are you working on? Because I pulled up your page. I mean, we, we obviously don't have the time to read all your books, but um, we're going to put them on our site. So let's talk about, I mean, you're prolific. I mean, that's a big word for Murph. That means you do a lot. So you're me. <laughs> that's a small word for you. Bite me. You're pro so where do you find the time to do all this stuff? Well. Um, that's a good question. I, uh, I just always, I mean, I, it's, it's, it, it's basic physics An object at rest will tend to stay at rest An object in motion tends to stay in motion. And I've just always been, uh, loved being busy. I mean, bear in mind for many years, I mean, I'm working as a detective, working shifts, also, uh, teaching a course at the university, completing and defending a PhD. Uh, so, I mean, to have a book on the go, uh, an article, a show, uh, teach my classes. I mean, I've, I've already established a certain bandwidth and, um, it's when you, when you enjoy what you're doing, you find purpose and, and, and meaning and, and reward in what you're doing. Uh, and, and again, meeting fascinating people, uh, it's, it doesn't feel like work. Well, you've got an extensive list here between your books, your articles, your, your journals, your essays and editorials, it's, it's, you know, I put this in a Word document. I've got like a page and a half of, at, at the number 12 font. So it, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in here. How up to date that is. My, uh, my most recent book just published a couple months ago, How to Solve a Cold Case and Everything Else You Wanted to Know About Catching Killers. The title's a bit, doesn't really do it justice, but I mean, it, it really, it's going to be probably my last book for a bit. Uh, it really is, ties in everything we've been talking about today. Murder Accountability Project, the fact the murder rate is not what you think it was, the, the nature of serial offenders, the future of DNA and genomics, uh, the history of true crime and its impact on actual crime and criminal investigations. It's sort of a tour de force of everything uh, the true crime uh, aficionado, I think, would be interested, including uh, law enforcement, because um, I, I do fortunately get uh, a lot of current and former law enforcement readers who email me with with ideas or, or tips, uh, in, including connections that they've made on cases after reading some of the more obscure cases I tend to write about and, and then wondering, 
if the offender I talk about is good for, again, the case that's still haunting them from, from years ago. Well, I'm seeing that there's one underneath how to solve a cold case called practical criminology, and it shows that that's forthcoming. Is that out yet? No, I'm not sure what the status is on that. It's So that's completed and filed, and uh, it's an academic book. So um, it's I'm at the mercy of the academic press now, so if and when they, they want to release that. But that's been done for some time. I should... You remind me, should probably follow up on that. I've been fixated on my other, <laughs> on my other commercial trade press. Books. I wrote this four years ago, people. Where's it at? Well, all of our reviewers keep <laughs> dying. We got to, you know, we're all aging out here. Uh, you know, that's a real thing. That's a uh, that is a real thing. I I get approached to pe- to peer review articles uh, that were written years ago because they just can't find people. And some of this stuff is pretty far afield from what I do. But I, I agree and say, yeah, you know what, like. Out of fairness to just the process and the the profession, I, this needs to keep moving. So I'll, I'll review it. Hey, got a question for you. What's your familiarity with the Vidoc Society? Limited. So I've read uh, the Murder Room, which is sort of the official book on it, and I worked with. Uh, well, not worked with. I was. Um, well, yeah, I, it's, I worked with a, a member as part of my last. Uh, book because I, I talked about a, a cold case in Pennsylvania. He's a Pennsylvania State Trooper cold case investigator. Andrew Martin is his name, and so he's a member of Vidoc uh, as well. So um, if I end up back that way, I, I intend on looking him up and hopefully going to uh, sitting on one of their meetings. They do very interesting work, obviously. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's they. I know some people who are members, and it's like it's yeah. It seems like another very interesting society. Uh, almost like the Masons, the Freemasons. We got to be careful because uh, everybody thinks that's a secret society, and it's not that secret. I'm a member, but uh, hey, uh, so which shows you they'll accept anybody. Well, their 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 service their service club uh, insignia is on every town in America, so they're not that uh, they're not that they're secret. Welcome yeah. to fill in the blank. No, <laughs> to be one, ask one, as they say. Hey, but let's let's kind of close out with this and talk about. Um, what for you? What would be the, the kind of the crowning, uh, the thing that you would like to see happen during your time? The, I don't want to say crowning achievement. That sounds like oh, there's just one thing, right? But what are two or three things you would love to see happen? Whether it's getting Canada, you know, to reestablish, you know, to come up with the real FOIA process. I mean, what are some big projects you're working on that you want to see happen? That some change to happen so that we can actually solve more cases, bring, make more people accountable, be more effective with our resources. Well, uh, and I've mentioned this before. I would like to see uh, complete, uh, unabashed, wholesale investment financial investment, but also political and operational investment in genomics uh, or uh, genealogical DNA. Uh, I mean, CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System, as a legacy DNA technology did wonders, but uh, I mean, there are labs now that deal with degraded and uh, limited samples uh, that CODIS just can't, that can't go into CODIS and that at the same time uh, can you know, identify bloodlines of, of offenders. And we, we, we've seen it used successfully, obviously, in the Golden State case, uh, the murder of April Tinsley, which uh, was an Indiana case, which for years really bothered me that that was unsolved. And that guy, and that guy, not, I mean, Steve, I don't know if you're familiar with the case. This guy, this piece of shit left 
phallic. I mean, he left vibrators. He left materials. He taunted people. Um, and he was finally identified through forensic yeah. uh, forensic genealogy. They found a match. And then through – but to your point, though, I, I don't want to shortcut that. But to your point, it's not just the DNA. Even with the forensic uh, genealogy, who do we have? We had Steve Smith, right, from Toronto. Um, we're talking – one of his cases he solved was using that uh, technique. But even that only gets you to a certain point. But at that point, you still got to have good old-fashioned detective work to track down leads, knock on doors, and talk to people, right? Absolutely. It's, it doesn't lead you directly to the suspect. You still have to then uh, keep someone under surveillance to obtain cast-off DNA or cut to the chase and get a DNA warrant or exhume a body in some cases. And I think that's the, the case you're talking about from Toronto. That was one of Canada's most infamous cold cases uh, solved uh, through genomics. Well, you know, the, the success that, that law enforcement has had with DNA, and, and it's not the, you know, it's not the smoking gun, but it is certainly a fantastic investigative lead, and it's resulted in getting people out of prison who were wrongly convicted. And, and I think you'll agree with us. We always say the last thing we want to do is put an innocent person in jail. So with, with those success stories already behind us, you would certainly think that the, the advancement of new generations of DNA evidence or investigative leads that come from it would just be automatically incorporated into whatever system you have. It, it, it just, you know, and I know this cause I was a cop for 38 years. We're the last ones to catch up the criminals. They, they, you know, they adapt and overcome our investigative techniques much quicker than we adapt and overcome their new uh, criminal advantages that they have on us. It, it just boggles your mind that that's not automatically done. Well, and this is the role of the the private sector now. And uh, innovation will always come from the private sector, as you know, and then make its way to the public sector. You often last, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, Murph, the old joke was yesterday's technology tomorrow and the government will solve just about everything. So that seemed to be our motto for a long time. Yeah, we'll use old 486 computers while everybody else has got these new things called Pentiums. But um, No, we're still uh, writing it out on legal pads and then letting some <laughs> secretary type it up for us. Well, Michael, that was the first one you said, you know, more in, more investment in that. What, what's what's another couple things you'd like to see come to pass in your lifetime? Oh, boy, got me on the spot. Um, I mean, I would like to see – it won't happen, but I mean, uh, sort of blue sky stuff would be a, a map Canada uh, because, I mean, there's, there's so many families and communities here that I think would benefit from it and investigators, I think, who would benefit from it. But uh, until things – until a 180 occurs politically in this country, um, that you're not going to see any buy-in from the the agencies that hold all the cards and have all the money. I mean, they're they're the bank, and uh, I mean, we're not talking just law enforcement here, but the the custodians of these records at the federal level who just really really don't care. Yeah, and that's sad too because when you look at between the U.S. and Canada, they call it the—I think it's the Highway of Tears. Um, we've got the missing and murdered Indigenous product project down here. Of all the unsolved cases that occur on Native American land, that Indigenous land up in Canada, it's like you guys got to come together because otherwise, you know what you do is you give a free hand for these people to go out and keep committing these crimes. When I was doing the research too. Uh, Native Americans and uh, Native Alaskans were two point one more. 2.1 times more likely to be a victim of homicide than any other race. And what does that tell you? It means they, they do it because they can get away with it and the resources aren't there. So that's your point. I'd like to, I'd like to, I'd like to dissolve these barriers, these boundaries and start looking at data holistically and say, let's pull it all together because you and I know 
one of the ways that offenders have gotten away with this for so long, whether it's Chicago, just they don't even have to, they can still be in the city of Chicago, but if they jump precincts and they go to a different place inside Cook County, um, or they go across state lines or they go across the boundary lines, going back and forth between Canada is not that hard when you're in the Detroit area, you know, the Niagara area, uh, you know, uh, Seattle, uh, you know, Whatcom County up there. So I just like to see that dissolve. Uh, final thoughts, you know, um, in terms of anything else you'd like to see that happen or, you know, Hey, what's in your, in your, in, in your world, uh, would Canada have a single police force? Would everything be unified under the direction of, of, uh, of you, you know, Dr. Mike, Dr. Evil, would you be in charge of everything? Yeah. You know what? Um, that's a whole other conversation. I mean, I would, Policing up here is 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 a mess. I mean, I, I I go to these conferences in the U.S. and I have people ask me, genuinely ask me. Uh, you know, they've heard of the RCMP. Uh, you know, they may have had some indirect involvement on you know, say, a major drug case. But they say, like, what what do they do? And I say, well, it depends on where in the country. I mean, if you're in you know, rural Saskatchewan, they're pulling you over for speeding in a marked car, the same. And you can imagine a, a, an FBI agent driving around giving out speeding tickets. On the East Coast, I mean, they're with Coast Guards that, uh, operators in, in helicopters or they're uh, stationed at an embassy in Bermuda. Uh, and, and so I go through like the short list and, you know, American LEOs will say like, that's like 40 different federal agencies and one police department is responsible for all of this. And we have a lot of, most of the country is policed on contract policing. There's not the resources to have a local police force or even a county sheriff's department. Um, so I would like to see a realignment of, of that. And conversations are already underway in that respect where um, some municipalities and some provinces that have been done wrong by contract policing, where they have no say in who is brought in to police. And it could be somebody you know, brought in from the Arctic uh, with no experience in a city uh, they, they pay for the service. They have no say in, in the, uh, the policies, procedures, or who gets sent to their towns. Um, so we're already seeing that, that shift a little bit. And I, I think you're going to have safer communities as a result. And I would like to see more of an American model. I mean, American law enforcement isn't without its issues, but where, again, local government is provided with the resources necessary to hire local people uh, and police locally rather than have these, um, you know, these massive state or uh, federal and provincial organizations that just plug holes and, and have warm bodies and cruisers really not doing much else. Wow. Well, that's, there you go. Dr. Mike Arnfeld, the new uh, high commissioner of all policing in the uh, country of Canada. We're, we're going to come up and visit you, but hey, no, look, this has been, I kid you on that, but this has been interesting. This has been probably one of the most philosophical discussions we've had, but, you know, deep dive into something like that. And, and I just, I appreciate the work that you do. I get, I personally get tired of seeing people that go on TV, pretend to be um, a, an expert on all things, serial crimes, serial killers. They know everything. They get everything wrong and the public, but then the public sees that and they believe this. So I want to thank you for just, first of all, for your service to the country of Canada, for your service to the profession of law enforcement and, and working on these hard cases like the serial killer cases, working with 
uh, Thomas Hargrove down there, the Murder Accountability Project. You folks can go to Murder Data and see that. And if you want to go to Michael's site, you can go to Michael Arntfield, A-R-N-T-F-I-E-L-D, michaelarntfield.com. He's got a lot of stuff on there. And look, just thank Thanks for hanging out with us for a couple hours and uh, through a couple of our technical challenges and just getting you on and discussing these fun things. What do you think, Murph? Yeah, and, and I just want to add, you know, th- this is a perfect example when you take people who are willing to step outside the normal bounds of being a law enforcement officer and pursue their education to the nth degree and then see an opportunity to expand the knowledge of others, especially college students who are you know, potentially looking at a career in criminal justice at, at whatever agency but then the forward thinking capabilities that you guys are exhibiting through uh, this uh, murder accountability project, uh, you know, Mr. Hargrove coming up with an algorithm to track the information, which, you know, I just wish that uh, other agencies, uh, there's, there's got to be a way to get this information out to all law enforcement, especially detective bureaus, you know, and state criminal investigation divisions so that they could task you guys uh, to find out what's going on with the case, the cold cases in their area. You know, even in Loudoun County there, Morgan, where you're living, uh, which I abandoned, the sheriff's office just hired... Traitorous a, bastard, yes. <laughs> just hired a retired DEA agent to come in and, and head up a cold case squad. So, you know, it's something that we should never overlook. That's why murder doesn't have a statute of limitations. Uh, it's that important. It's To me, it's it's right there at the top of being the ultimate crime that can be committed, that you're taking another human being's life. So uh, to echo a little bit of what Morgan just said there, my hat is off to you, brother. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for giving us your time today. Most of this was above my head, uh, and I apologize for the background noise here. So I'm hoping Morgan can edit some of this crap out. But well, I can edit bless. you out completely, Murph. I just wipe out your entire track, and it'll and, I can and, do that. Mike, you probably just heard a noise that was like an annoying uh, mosquito or a bumblebee there. And I, I'm, I'm sorry that comes across. We call that Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> hey, but Mike, seriously, this is me saluting you, sir. Thank you for spending all your time with us and stay safe in Canada and, and be sure to come back, you know, let us know what's going on, especially when there's developments uh, in this case is in Chicago and Cleveland. Oh, absolutely. And thank you both for having me on. This has been uh this has been a real treat. So, and uh, thanks for the feedback and thanks for what you do and giving a, a platform to, uh, to LEOs, all of whom have, uh, I think a, a story to tell and you're letting them tell that story. So I'll, I'll keep listening and I'd love to come back. Ab- absolutely, man. You and I are going to be doing some talking. So don't you, neither one of you guys go anywhere. We got some talking to do after this, everybody else, you all stay tuned for the debrief. That was, uh, I mean, again, one parter, but for that one part, man, we packed so much stuff in to those two hours diving into these issues. Um, and it's fascinating. So, I mean, he's done a lot of stuff with TV, you know, with media, because people, sometimes I think it's an unhealthy fascination some people have with this, but it's very instructive to listen to what Mike's doing, the type of research he's working on. And uh, some of the stuff, the thing that I've been working on that I got a patent on him and I've uh, been going back and forth a little bit. So maybe there'll be something in the future. Who knows? Well, what I liked about this interview was I learned a ton of stuff, probably more than any interview we've done so far since we started Game of Crimes. Uh, Mike is obviously well-read. He's up to date on the latest technologies out there. He's participating. His He's such an expertise at, uh, or he's such an expert and his expertise is called on around the world for the accomplishments he's made. So 
Uh, and, and, you know, I think the public does like to hear about this because I think it gives them a certain amount of comfort to know that, you know, when these violent and vicious and the most heinous crimes happen, you got professionals like him who he's a retired cop. But he, just like we always say, just because you retire you're, doesn't mean that your oath expires. So proud to have Mike on the show here. He's showing us what he's still doing to help his fellow man. God bless you, brother. Glad to have you on the show. Yeah, keep it up. And as, as we get uh, as we make some progress, we will bring reports of that progress. As I say in Canada, they don't say progress. They say progress. Yeah. Back to you. We're trying to teach them how to speak the, you know. The Queen's English. That's right. All right. So, uh, hey, guys. Well, again, we hope you enjoyed that. Again, like we said, one of the most in-depth, kind of uh, very instructive episodes we've done. Uh, just head on over now to Apple and Spotify. Hit those five stars. It's magic. We don't know how it works. It's David Blaine, David Copperfield, the Magic Kingdom, Disney, all rolled up in one. We just know it really helps us. Also, head on over to Game of Crimes podcast for more dot uh, com for more info about the show. You know, we on we update as we go along. Check out the book page. All of Mike's books will be on there. You're going to have to scroll the page to get all of them. So, but just keep scrolling. It's all there. That list, our book page is getting big. Yeah, I think I counted up. We have like 26 or 28 books on there wow. already. Wow. Yeah. That's and, and guys, these are all done. We don't we don't pimp out anybody else's books. If the author or the person on our uh, podcast is not the author or co-author, we don't put the book up there. Yep. So it's got to it's got to come from the source. So hey, also follow us on that thing we call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. PayPal.com. Use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or PayPal.me slash Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you. And what makes it easy for Murph is when I say, hey, Murph, where you got to be, where you got to be, where do you got to be? You got to get over on Patreon, everybody. Come over and check us out. Just check us out. Give us a shot. Uh, come in at the entry level if you want to. See if you like what you hear and then bump it on up there because there's some stuff. <laughs> there's a lot of funny stuff on there. And I will tell you this. For f it starts off at five bucks a month at our evil is coming level. You will get more content at that level than you get at other people's levels that are charging ten and fifteen dollars. I guarantee you. There you go. And and, and I tell you, look, the, we just recorded this this week. The, our our monthly Q and A, where our listeners send questions in to us. We have not turned down a single question yet. We haven't refused to ask a question. Some of them are fun. We've got one that has the rapid fire where you have to pick Rick Jacobson, things. man, he likes the rapid fire stuff, and we do it. It's fun. I love it. And so come on over, check it out, listen to it. Uh, if you got questions for us, it's a great place to put the questions on, and then everybody can hear the answers. That's right. So, hey, guys, do that. Uh, Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's like, why do they repeat it three times? Because it takes three times to get it. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. When you hear all those commercials and they repeat the number three times, there's magic to it. There's our magic. So, hey, guys. And if you have an emergency, call 199. Well, 911. 911. <laughs> Don't listen to Murph. <laughs> That's why Murph will still be sitting there as his house burns down. Go, where is everybody? I got information, but I couldn't get 911. Oh, 911. Oh, doggone it. <laughs> Okay. How do you spell that? Yeah. Well, guys, we want to thank you once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most informative, and most dangerous game of all, the original unadulterated Canadian version this week of Game of Crimes. Game of Crimes.